woman which thou sawest is that great city, which reigneth over the kings of the earth. Revelation 17, 18. Which city is this that reigns over all the kings of the earth? Rome? New York? Mecca? There are over 90 characteristics given in the book of Revelation about the city of Mystery Babylon, and none of these three cities meets all of the criteria. But there is one city that does, or should I say, will. Too often, people look for the city of Mystery Babylon in history, or in their present day, as opposed to what the scriptures say we will see in the future. The Bible tells us exactly which city will be the capital city of the Antichrist in the last days. It tells us the city that will promote the Antichrist worship to the rest of the world. This will be a study on Revelation chapter 17 through 18, which is widely considered to be some of the most difficult chapters in the book of Revelation. I hope that you will make an effort to go through the entire study. So why do such an in-depth study on this particular issue? In addition to the study of the woman that rides the beast, or Mystery Babylon, we will also be studying in depth the beast itself, which is widely considered to be the Antichrist. This section of scripture offers so many opportunities to study other events in prophecy, such as Daniel and the timing of the events of the book of Revelation, and therefore it's a great way to study a lot of different concepts in prophecy at the same time. There's also a lot of confusion about the identity of Mystery Babylon, and some of those interpretations not only lead to bad doctrine, but it puts the church in danger, I believe, of being deceived in the end times. It's also important to study prophecy in general, because a major portion of the Bible consists of prophecy. Thus, if we neglect it, we are neglecting a major portion of the Bible. The scriptures cannot be rightly understood or unfolded if the prophetic sections are neglected. Even among dedicated Bible scholars and teachers, there is a huge variety of views about the identity of Mystery Babylon. Yet the angel in Revelation 17:18 actually tells John what it is that he's just seen. And the angel tells John that it is a city. It says, And the woman which thou sawest is that great city which reigneth over the kings of the earth. It is referred to as a city eight times in Revelation, and all the things that happen to it seem to be talking about a literal city. For instance, the city is burned down, and smoke can be seen from the nearby sea. All this and many other factors cause most Bible scholars to believe that it is talking about a literal city. There are many candidates that are proposed for the identity of this city by Bible scholars. Some of them include Rome or Vatican City. Many early reformers saw it as Rome, as well as, somewhat ironically, the Catholic Church teaches that it is Rome as well, in their New American Bible Commentary on the Vatican website, although it should be said that they are referring to ancient pagan Rome, where the reformers would say that it was the Rome of the Catholic Church's day. The actual city of Babylon in Iraq is suggested by some. They say that it would be rebuilt in the future in the scenario. And we will look in depth at this possibility as well as these other possibilities in our study. Another proposal is Mecca, or other Arab cities have been proposed. This view has been especially popular very recently. Also, the city of Jerusalem is proposed. This is the earliest view on Mystery Babylon. And it's also held by the widest variety of different Christian groups. And then people also propose New York and really a long list of other less popular candidates. There are also some very popular viewpoints that take the Bible as speaking metaphorically or allegorically here. They say that it's not really a city, but symbolic of something else. Some of these views include that it is a world pagan religious system or a world financial system or both. There is no reason that there should be this much confusion. I've counted the characteristics given to Mystery Babylon, and in the three chapters that deal with her, over 90 characteristics are mentioned. 
That's an astonishing amount of detail given for Mystery Babylon. And in this study, I will show that there is explicit biblical evidence for most of, if not all, of these 90 characteristics. There is no need to guess, because the Bible has made sure that we can know for certain simply by comparing scripture with other scripture. I'm sure that you will agree that the answer to this age-old question of the identity of Mystery Babylon is found within the pages of scripture. Before I go any further, I'm going to tell you who I think scripture teaches that Mystery Babylon is. When I first heard this theory proposed, I said, it couldn't be. But I hope you will see just as I did, if you give me just a few minutes, that there's no one else it can be. It is the eschatological city of Jerusalem. Notice I chose my words very carefully in how I described it. In other words, it is the future Jerusalem of the end times, where according to Daniel 11.45, the Antichrist sets up his end times world government and end times world religion headquarters. The city and its inhabitants will promote the Antichrist as the one true God, thereby committing the ultimate abomination, the ultimate harlotry. But even worse, they also promote him and entice the world to follow them in their worship of the man of sin. We know that the Antichrist will choose Jerusalem as the place to declare himself to be God in 2 Thessalonians 2.4, Matthew 24.15, Daniel 11.31-32, and we know that the greatest religious killing of all time will happen in the city of Jerusalem according to Matthew 24.15-21. So often we look at the woman and try to define her in terms of what we have already seen in history, as opposed to what scripture says we will see in the future. That is the primary reason why people miss this, I think, because as we will see, it is not because of lack of explicit biblical support. For instance, Revelation 18.24 says, And in her, speaking of Mystery Babylon, was found the blood of prophets. Have you ever known any cities to kill the prophets in scripture or in history? Actually, we don't even have to speculate. As Jesus says, it was impossible for a prophet to be killed anywhere except Jerusalem. In Luke 13.31-34 it says, The same day there came certain of the Pharisees, saying unto him, Get thee out, and depart hence, for Herod will kill thee. And he said unto them, Go ye and tell that fox, Behold, I cast out devils, and I do cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I shall be perfected. Nevertheless, I must walk today and tomorrow, and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet perish out of Jerusalem. So, the Pharisees are saying, Get out of here, or Herod's going to kill you. And he's basically saying, Look, I have to stay in town, because all the prophets are killed in Jerusalem. And then Luke quotes this famous line, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, which killest the prophets, and stonest them that are sent unto thee. How often I would have gathered thy children together, as a hen doth gather her brood under her wings, and ye would not. This is repeated by the Lord in other places as well. For instance, in another place he tells them that their fathers killed the prophets, and they hypocritically built their tombs. He names Zechariah as an example, which he says was killed near the temple. He also says that they will be held accountable and judged for this blood on their hands. If the blood of the prophets is found in the mystery Babylonian city, it is strong evidence in favor of it being Jerusalem. Jerusalem is specifically called a harlot hundreds of times in scripture, and in the very same context, always spiritual harlotry, following false gods, and because of their killing prophets, etc. Just a small sampling of this is in Isaiah 1.21, where it says, How has the faithful city become a harlot? It was full of judgment, righteousness lodged in it, but now murders. Or in Ezekiel chapter 16, which is entirely about this subject, it starts out, Again the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, Son of man, cause Jerusalem to know her abominations. And he spends the whole chapter saying things like, But thou didst trust in thine own beauty, and playedest the harlot because of thy renown, and poured out thy fornications on every one that passed by, as it was. And of thy garments thou didst take, and decadest the high places with diverse colors, and playedest the harlot thereupon. The like things shall not come, neither shall it be so. Jerusalem is constantly warned in scripture that if they do not turn from their harlotries, they will be judged. And as we go through Revelation 17 and 18, we will find that the exact judgments Mystery Babylon gets are the exact same ones promised to Jerusalem because of their spiritual harlotry. 
Here's one example from Ezekiel 16, 40 through 43. They shall also bring up a company against thee, and they shall stone thee with stones, and thrust thee through with their swords, and they shall burn thine houses with fire, and execute judgments upon thee in the sight of many women. And I will cause thee to cease from playing the harlot, and thou also shalt give no hire any more. Therefore, I also will recompense thy way upon thine head, saith the Lord God, and thou shalt not commit this lewdness above all thine abominations. Behold, everyone that uses proverbs shall use this proverb against thee, saying, As is the mother, so is her daughter. This idea here that Jerusalem is a harlot that has children or inhabitants that are harlots too is what is meant when Revelation says that the woman is the mother of harlots. The harlots are the inhabitants and Jerusalem is the mother. I think that a lot of the confusion is that commentators want to stick the word all in there, as in the mother of all harlots, as if it was talking about the source of all bad things from the history of the world. But that's not what the text says Mystery Babylon is. It simply says that the city is the mother of harlots. Those harlots here are the inhabitants of the city. When Jesus reiterates this prophecy, he uses the same language. In Luke 23, 28-30 it says, But Jesus, turning unto them, said, Daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming, in the which they shall say, Blessed are the barren for the wombs that have never bare, and the paps which never gave suck. Then shall they begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, cover us. This view of a futuristic Jerusalem, of the Antichrist's reign, being Mystery Babylon, is not my view alone. I am standing firmly on the shoulders of giants. I heard this view first from a great Bible scholar named Charles Cooper, but I was pleasantly surprised to find that this view is the earliest view recorded of the Church Fathers that I know of. There was a writer named Hippolytus, and he produced the earliest known commentary on the book of Revelation. He was probably the most important theologian of the 200s, and this was an important time because the Revelation was written very late, so it took a long time for it to be circulated, and as a result, we don't find many commentaries on the book of Revelation until about Hippolytus' time. The problem is, is that the way that people interpreted the Bible, the hermeneutic of the early church, was about to change. In the 300s, about the time that the Catholic Church began, people started interpreting the Bible more allegorically, as opposed to a more literal or face-value approach. As a result, there is a very short window of time where we can hear the views of a premillennial and futurist church father on the book of Revelation. And this is what Hippolytus had to say. By the unrighteous judge who fears not God, neither regards man, he means without doubt Antichrist, as he is a son of the devil and a vessel for Satan. For when he has the power, he will begin to exalt himself against God, neither in truth fearing God, nor regarding the Son of God, who is the judge of all. And in saying that there was a widow in the city, he refers to Jerusalem itself, which is a widow indeed. Forsaken of her perfect heavenly spouse God, she calls him her adversary and not her savior, for she does not understand that which was said by the prophet Jeremiah, quote, because they observe not the truth, a spirit of error shall speak then to this people and to Jerusalem. He says this in Treaties on Christ and the Antichrist. It is also worth noting that Hippolytus was a student of Irenaeus, who was a student of Polycarp, who was a student of John the Apostle, the guy who wrote the book of Revelation. So I hope during this verse-by-verse -verse study you will be challenged as much as I was in my interpretation of Mystery Babylon. I used to think that the woman was Rome or the Vatican, and when we get to the verses about the seven mountains, you will see why I think that this interpretation held by so many is grammatically and contextually impossible. I also used to think that it was referencing an allegorical kind of amalgamation of all the world's occult religions or financial evil. And you'll see that that view requires a deliberate departure from the plain and simple meaning of the text. It also goes against the angel's own interpretation of this woman. It also tries to force that word all into phrases like mother of abominations and mother of harlots. I've actually seen commentaries do this. They insert the word all into the text saying instead mother of all harlots or mother of all abominations. It's just not there. This imaginary all 
makes people think that they have to make Mystery Babylon account for all the world's evil, past, present, and future. So they go looking in the past or in the present for the most evil thing that they can think of. And that's pretty much how they come up with their interpretation of Mystery Babylon. Whatever the most evil thing is in their paradigm is what she will be to them. It is not a coincidence, therefore, that all the books about Mystery Babylon being Islam showed up after 9-11. But that is no way to interpret the Bible. The strength of verse-by-verse -verse study is its thoroughness. And this will take several weeks to go through the study, but I ask you to stay with me. It will give an opportunity to teach some of the most complicated aspects of the Antichrist, as well as the city that he chooses to set up shop in. After the study, I think that you will understand the book of Revelation better than you ever have. Revelation 17, verse 1 says, And there came one of the seven angels, which had the seven vials, and talked with me, saying unto me, Come hither, I will show unto thee the judgment of the great whore that sitteth upon many waters. And this first line connects us back to the previous chapter, chapter 16, where the seven bowls were being poured out. The seventh bowl is the judgment of Mystery Babylon, the very thing in which we will be studying. So let's go back and read that passage in Revelation chapter 16 first. And the seventh angel poured out his vial into the air, and there came a great voice out of the temple of heaven from the throne, saying, It is done. And there were voices and thunders and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake, such as was not since men were upon the earth, so mighty an earthquake and so great. And the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And great Babylon came in remembrance before God, to give unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. And every island fled away, and the mountains were not found, and there fell upon men a great hail out of heaven, every stone about the weight of a talent. And men blasphemed God because of the plague of hail, for the plague thereof was exceeding great. As so often is the case in the book of Revelation, it will now, back in our chapter, chapter 17, sort of zoom in and take a closer look at this great city that has just been judged. This is the pattern seen very often in the book of Revelation and scripture in general. For instance, in Revelation 13, it breaks from the chronological narrative to zoom in on the character of the Antichrist and false prophet. The same thing happens in chapter 7, where the chronology of the seals breaks to tell us more about the 144,000 and the great multitude or in chapter 11, when it zooms in to tell you the details of the two witnesses. Here is no different. After telling us of the destruction of the great city, it will now zoom in to give us more details about its character. Those details will last two chapters and will be the focus of our study. And there came one of the seven angels which had the seven vials and talked with me. This is one of the seven angels in charge of the seven vials or seven bowls, depending on which translation you're reading. We're not told which angel specifically it is. But, in any case, it takes John aside and will begin to show him more details about the judgment of the great whore. It says here that she sitteth on many waters. This is not left for us to guess its meaning, as the angel will later tell us what this phrase means. In Revelation 17:15, it says, And he saith unto me, The waters which thou sawest, where the whore sitteth, are peoples, multitudes, and nations, and tongues. When we combine this verse with verse 18, which says, And the woman which thou sawest is that great city which reigneth over the kings of the earth, we see that this is a city that might be the center of a world empire of some kind. It will be the chief city in that empire or system. It is the seat of authority of the world government and religious system. We will also see later on that the term great city is specifically identified as Jerusalem by John. This would be consistent with Daniel 11.45, where, speaking of the Antichrist, it says, And he shall plant the tents of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. Next verse, Revelation 17.2 says, With whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth were made drunk with the wine of her fornication. RevelationCommentary.org says of this first phrase, With whom the kings of the earth committed fornication, that it is fulfilling John's commission to 
prophesy against kings given in Revelation 10 verse 11. So what is this fornication? It's actually a really important point to figure out what the nature of this fornication being committed is. Revelation 19.2 says that the great harlot corrupts the earth with her fornication. That word corrupt there in the Greek means to cause the moral ruin of somebody. The terms like harlot or fornication are used very frequently in the Old Testament. And in only a minority of the cases is it referring to actual sexual harlotry or fornication. In a vast majority of the cases, it is used to describe the worshiping of false gods, especially in reference to Israel. Even in the famous story of Hosea the prophet, where Hosea was told to marry an actual prostitute, this was intended to be a symbol of God's relationship with Israel, who commits spiritual prostitution by worshiping other gods. Hosea 3 verse 1 explains, Then the Lord said to me, Go again and love a woman who is loved by a lover and is committing adultery, just like the love of the Lord for the children of Israel who look to other gods and love the raisin cakes of the pagans. Spiritual harlotry is one of the most attested to symbols in scripture. When God is referring to harlotry or fornication, and it's obviously not one of the literal references, he makes it clear that it is spiritual harlotry achieved by the worshiping of false gods. One example that illustrates this well is in Ezekiel 16, 35 and 36, where it says, Wherefore, O harlot, hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord God, because thy filthiness was poured out and thy nakedness discovered through thy whoredoms, with thy lovers and with all the idols of thy abominations, and by the blood of thy children which thou didst give unto them. Here it is speaking of the practice of Israel sacrificing their children to the god Moloch, as well as the worship of idols of false gods. Also, in Jeremiah 3, verse 6, we find a good example. It says, The Lord said also unto me in the days of Josiah the king, Hast thou seen that which backsliding Israel has done? She has gone up on every high mountain, and under every green tree, and there hath played the harlot. Here again we see harlotry made synonymous with the worship of false gods. The high places term is referring to the altars that would be made to false gods, and the quote under the green tree was also a common place of false worship. This combination of terms is actually referring back to Deuteronomy 12 verse 2 where it says, Ye shall utterly destroy all the places wherein the nations which ye shall possess served their gods upon the high mountains and upon the hills and under every green tree. So if this is the correct view of this fornication, and I think that we will see as we progress that it is, then the kings of the earth are both committing fornication with her and drunk off of her fornications. They are drawn in by her own infatuation and worship of the beast. This, I believe, is best understood as the city of Jerusalem promoting the Antichrist, not just as their Messiah, but as God himself. They will be instrumental in the promotion of the worship of the Antichrist to the world. We see that the world during the reign of Antichrist will do religious service to him, bringing gifts from every nation to worship him with. The world will be enticed to fully worshiping the Antichrist by the great city and its inhabitants. So you can see what it means here. She herself is committing this fornication, and the world is made drunk by it, and they themselves also commit the same fornication. The next verse, Revelation 17, verse 3, says, So he carried me away in the spirit into the wilderness, and I saw a woman sit on a scarlet-colored beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. So this first part, John is, quote, carried away by the Spirit. So he's still being divinely directed in this vision. The wilderness here does not have the definite article the, T-H-E, in the Greek. It's often better rendered a wilderness. So here we are introduced to another crucial character in this unholy drama, and it is the scarlet-colored beast, full of names of blasphemy, having seven heads and ten horns. This is the exact same beast that we saw in Revelation 13, which is almost universally agreed to be a description of the Antichrist. So let's jump back to Revelation 13, verse 1, and it says this, And I stood upon the sand of the sea, and saw a beast rise up out of the sea, 
having seven heads and ten horns, and upon his horns ten crowns, and upon his heads the name of blasphemy. It is important to understand this basic symbolism. Here the great city is riding the Antichrist. This does not mean that she is in any way in control of the Antichrist, though. We know this because we see that later on in Revelation 17, verse 16, that the Antichrist actually turns on her and destroys her, and in fact, hates her. She, however, believes that she has found a true husband and her king in the beast. Revelation 18, verse 7b says, For she saith in her heart, I sit a queen, and am no widow, and shall see no sorrow. But sadly, she is mistaken. And it says that she will be utterly destroyed by the one she calls her king and her husband. This full of names of blasphemy is an important description of the Antichrist and is used in various places in scripture. Notably in Daniel 11, 36 and 37, where it says, And the king shall do according to his will, and he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god, and shall speak marvelous things against the god of gods, and shall prosper till the indignation be accomplished. For that that is determined shall be done, Neither shall he regard the God of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor regard any God, for he shall magnify himself above all. And in 2 Thessalonians 2.4, it says, Who opposes and exalteth himself above all that is called God, or that is worshipped, so that he, as God, sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. Now we're going to speak more in depth of these seven heads and ten horns when we discuss verses 9 and 10, but I believe that they're speaking of the different occasions in history in which the spirit of Antichrist has manifested itself in the form of kings. John, as we will see, says of these heads, they are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, the other has not yet come, and when he comes, he must remain only a little while. One of the heads, I believe the seventh one, the one that John says was yet to come, will be the Antichrist who will receive a mortal wound and yet live. Back in Revelation 13, when John is talking about this seven-headed beast, he says the following, And I saw one of his heads, as it were, wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed, and all the world wondered after the beast. The beast that she rides is the spirit of Antichrist that, in the time of writing of this book, had already manifested itself in the form of kings six times in history, one of them, the last head, being yet future. We are also told in Revelation 13 that one of these heads, I believe the one yet to come, for reasons we will discuss later, will be mortally wounded and will seem to come back to life. This is the beast that she worships instead of the true God. Okay, Revelation 17, verse 4, and it says, And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color, and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls, having a golden cup in her hand full of abomination and filthiness of her fornication. Okay, so this is a loaded verse and there's a lot to cover, so let's get started. First, this phrase, arrayed in blue and scarlet color. This particular phrase, purple and scarlet, occurs 29 times in the Old Testament. The entire Old Testament phrase usually consists of blue, purple, and scarlet, and fine twisted linen. So here we have the notable lack of blue, which is usually included in the Old Testament, and we're going to talk about that a little later. Fine twisted linen, as we will see, is in fact included in Mystery Babylon. But an example of its usage in the Old Testament is in Exodus 26, verse 1, where it says, Moreover, thou shalt make the tabernacle with ten curtains of fine twisted linen, and blue, and purple, and scarlet, with cherubims of cunning work shalt thou make them. These curtains of the temple were by no means the only things that were supposed to consist of purple and scarlet, blue and fine linen. The same phrase was used in relation to the following items. The curtains of the temple, the veil of the temple, the hanging for the door of the tent uh, where the lampstands were, the hanging for the gate of the court, certain offerings, cloths of service, the girdle for the high priest, the ephod for the high priest, the breastplate of the high priest, the stitched pomegranates on the high priest's garments also were made of blue, purple, scarlet, and fine linen. 
Almost everything that was cloth in the service of the temple was to be made of this material. And what is going to be of particular interest to us, I think, as we progress, is the relationship of the clothes of Mystery Babylon to the clothes of the high priest. Notice, though, there is a difference between what was said of the clothing of Mystery Babylon, and the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet color, and the clothing of the high priest and the various items associated with temple worship. It includes blue, purple, and scarlet, and fine twisted linen. At first, it would seem that fine linen is not mentioned in relationship to Mystery Babylon, but in a later verse, it actually does mention that fine linen is included as well. And saying, Alas, alas, the great city, which was clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet and decked with gold and precious stones and pearls. So the only difference between the clothing of Mystery Babylon and the clothing of the high priest is the color blue. This could be due to the significance that the Bible put on the color blue in relation to its symbolism of being in right standing with God and his commandments. Numbers 15, 38 through 40 says, Speak unto the children of Israel and bid them that they make them fringes in the borders of their garments throughout their generations, and that they put upon the fringe of the borders a ribbon of blue, and it shall be unto you for a fringe, that you may look upon it and remember all the commandments of the Lord and do them, and that ye seek not after your own heart and your own eye, after which ye used to go whoring, that you may remember and do all my commandments and be holy unto your God. The Ark of the Covenant in the tabernacle was also covered with a blue cloth, and the robe of the high priest was also blue. I'm suggesting that Mystery Babylon is wearing the clothing of a harlot high priest that is promoting the worship not of the true God in temple service, but of the Antichrist who also will make use of the temple. This interpretation, I believe, is greatly strengthened when we get to the next verse about the name on the woman's forehead, and we will see the connection to the high priest and the name that was on his forehead. But for now, let's continue on with this present verse. The next phrase, decked with gold and precious stones and pearls. Decked, I think, is really the key word here. It's different than the word arrayed. Decked has more to do with jewels. One definition says that it means to bring an ornament upon. Decked is not a very common word in the Old Testament. In fact, it's only used ten times, and it has a very provocative use. The overall picture of its use in the Old Testament is God saying that he decked Jerusalem with precious jewels when she was in her youth. But as she began to commit adultery by the worship of pagan gods, she then begins to deck herself in a different manner. For example, here in the first part of Ezekiel 16, we see how God decked her in her proverbial youth. Ezekiel 16, 11-15 says, I decked thee also with ornaments, and I put bracelets upon thy hands, and a chain on thy neck, and I put a jewel on thy forehead, and earrings in thine ears, and a beautiful crown upon thine head. Thus was thou decked with gold and silver, and thy raiment was of fine linen, and silk embroidered work. Thou didst eat fine flour and honey and oil, and thou wast exceeding beautiful, and thou didst prosper into a kingdom, and thy renown went forth among the heathen for thy beauty. For it was perfect through my comeliness which I had put upon thee, saith the Lord God. But thou didst trust in thine own beauty, and playedest the harlot because of thy renown, and poredest out thy fornication on every one that passes by, as it was. Then, later, when Jerusalem becomes a prostitute, she decks herself a different way. Ezekiel 16, 17-18 says, Thou hast also taken thy fair jewels of my gold and of my silver, which I had given thee, and madest to thyself images of men, and didst commit whoredom with them, and tookest thy broidered garments, and coveredest them, and thou hast set mine oil and mine incense before them. Another example of this is in Ezekiel 23, verse 40, where it says, And furthermore, that ye have sent for men to come from far, unto whom a messenger was sent, and, lo, they came, for whom thou didst wash thyself, paintest thy eyes, and deckest thyself with ornaments. And in Hosea 2, verse 13, where it says, and I will visit upon her the days of Balaam, wherein she burned incense to them, and she decked herself with her earrings and her jewels, and she went after her lovers and forgot me, saith the Lord. But one of the most provocative uses of the word decked in relation to our verse in Revelation 17, verse 4, is found in Jeremiah 4, 29-30, where, speaking of the city of Jerusalem, it says, The whole city shall flee for the noise of the horsemen and the bowmen. 
They shall go into thickets and climb up upon the rocks. Every city shall be forsaken, and not a man dwell therein. And when thou art spoiled, what wilt thou do? Though thou clothest thyself with crimson, though thou deckest thee with ornaments of gold, though thou rentest thy face with painting, in vain shalt thou make thyself fair. Thy lovers will despise thee, they will seek thy life. The connections to Mystery Babylon here should be quite obvious. It's also interesting to note that her lover will despise her and take her life here in Jeremiah. And if you remember from last week, this is exactly what the beast that Mystery Babylon rides, which she calls her king and her husband, will do. He will despise her and turn on her and kill her. One interesting thing is the mention of pearls in this verse. I found this reference somewhat curious, as there is only one mention of pearls in the Old Testament. In fact, there's only eight references in the entire Bible to pearls, and half of those are in the book of Revelation here. Three of the other references are using pearls as an example of something valuable, like the pearl of great price, or don't throw your pearls before swine. The only pearl reference that is left is also one that I think is applicable to this verse, and it is found in 1 Timothy 2, verse 9. It says, In like manner also that women adorn themselves in modest apparel, with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with broidered hair or gold or pearls or costly array. Here, being decked with pearls is used as the opposite of modest clothing. That would seem to fit the description of Mystery Babylon, but there may be other significance to this idea that I'm not aware of. Moving on to the next phrase, having a golden cup in her hand full of abominations and filthiness of her fornication. The only other time this golden cup appears in the Bible that I know of is in Jeremiah 51, verse 7, where I'm sure it's not a coincidence that the entire chapter is talking about the actual fall of Babylon the city, which I believe is a prefiguration of mystery Babylon's fall. Many parallels can be seen between these two chapters if you read them carefully. This phrase, golden cup, is certainly one of them. The verse reads, Babylon hath been a golden cup in the Lord's hand that made all the earth drunken. The nations have drunken of her wine, therefore the nations are mad. Notice here also that the nations are drunk with the wine in the cup. It makes them mad. This is a direct parallel to Revelation 17.2, which says, With whom the kings of the earth have committed fornication, and the inhabitants of the earth have been made drunk with the wine of her fornication. It's often missed, and I think very important, that what is in the cup is her own fornication, her own sin, and the nations are made drunk by it. I think that Revelation 18.3 gives us more details on this when it says, For all nations have drunk of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. This phrase, wine of the wrath of her fornication, as the King James Version has it, is kind of an odd way to put it. I mean, does fornication have wrath? The ESV, I think, captures the sense of this verse when it says, for all the nations have drunk the wine of the passion of her fornication. What I'm suggesting here is that she is so passionately promoting the Antichrist as her Messiah, as her God, that it entices the world to join her in that fornication. They also commit this abomination themselves, don't get me wrong, but it is because of her own fierce promotion of this idolatry that the world joins her in the sin of the worship of the Antichrist. And it's in this sense that she fulfills the role of the harlot high priest. Revelation 18.4 expands on this idea that her own sin is causing others to sin when it says, And I heard another voice from heaven saying, Come out of her, my people, that ye not be partakers of her sins, and that ye receive not her plagues. Okay, moving on to the next verse, Revelation 17, verse 5, and it says, And upon her forehead was the name written mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots and abominations of the earth. The first thing I want you to focus on is this phrase, upon her forehead. There are two notable things about foreheads in the Old Testament that are going to be important. The first is in relation to the high priest's uniform. In Exodus 28, it is discussing the headband of the high priest, and it says, And thou shalt make a plate of pure gold engrave upon it, like the engravings of a signet, holiness to the Lord. And thou shalt put it on a blue lace, that it may be upon the mitre, upon the forefront of the mitre it shall be. And it shall be upon Aaron's forehead, 
that Aaron may bear the iniquity of the holy things, which the children of Israel shall hallow in all their holy gifts. And it shall be always upon his forehead that they may be accepted before the Lord. This is a very interesting bit of information considering the connection to the high priest's garments that we have already seen. The high priest had a gold plate that covered his forehead with the words holiness to the Lord engraved on it. This is contrasted with Mystery Babylon, the harlot high priest who has on her forehead the words Mystery Babylon the Great, the mother of harlots. This brings us to another usage of foreheads in the Old Testament, which I think may also be at play here. Jeremiah 3 verse 3 says, Therefore the showers have been withholden, and there hath been no latter rain, and thou hast a whore's forehead. Thou refusest to be ashamed. There is a refusal to be ashamed of her idolatry here, which is exemplified in Mystery Babylon, I would submit, by the proud boasting of her abominations written on her forehead. This should not be understood, I don't think, as her knowing that she is worshipping and promoting the Antichrist, because she does say that she is not a widow and that she sits as a queen. I think it just means that her promotion of the Antichrist as God or the Messiah or whatever will be very bold and very out in the open. And as the verse in the ESV has it, the passion of her fortification is what will intoxicate the masses. Okay, let's take a look at this word mystery. First notice the comma in the King James, as in mystery, comma, Babylon. The name is not a proper name, Mystery Babylon, as I've been using it and probably will continue to use it, but rather the mystery here is signifying that there is something secret about the name Babylon the Great. Other translations reflect this a little better, I think. For instance, the Geneva Bible says, and in her forehead was a name written, a mystery, the great Babylon, the mother of whoredoms and the abominations of the earth. The ESV says, and on her forehead was written a name of mystery. Babylon the Great, mother of prostitutes and the earth's abominations. The ISV says, on her forehead was written a secret name, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and detestable things of the earth. The word in Greek is mysterion, and it means a secret or mystery, but it has the idea of a silence imposed by initiation into some kind of rite. Uh, in other words, it's a secret that can be discovered. This alone is a strong argument against Mystery Babylon being the literal city of Babylon, the fact that the name Babylon is a mystery. The idea of giving cities spiritual names that depend on the type of characteristics they exhibit or have exhibited is demonstrated earlier in the book of Revelation when it calls Jerusalem by two, quote, spiritual names. It says, speaking of the two witnesses, and their dead bodies will lie in the streets of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also the Lord was crucified. Later on, we will look more in depth at this verse, but now I only want to call your attention to some of the other spiritual names given to Jerusalem here. They are Sodom and Egypt, both cities known interbiblically for their various sins. And when Jerusalem acts like one of those notorious cities, the Bible calls them by that name. The next word is this title, Babylon. Is there any indication in scripture of Jerusalem being called Babylon specifically? And I think we see this exact thing in 1 Peter 5, 12 through 13, which says, by Silvanus, our faithful brother, as I consider him, I have written to you briefly, exhorting and testifying that this is the true grace of God in which you stand. She who is in Babylon, elect together with you, greets you, and so does Mark, my son. In addition to Jerusalem, this verse is also argued as referencing Rome, as well as to the literal city of Babylon. It should be noted that there are strong religious motives for making Peter be referencing Rome here. The Catholic Church literally needs Peter to have been the first bishop of Rome. This is part of one of the most important of all Catholic doctrines. The entire concept of the papacy relies on this historical claim of Peter being in Rome and serving as its bishop, thereby being the first pope. And because of the lack of any biblical evidence for Peter even visiting Rome, and therefore lack of biblical support for the papacy, this verse has been used to support the idea that Peter did go to Rome and that he called it Babylon. 
A small minority argue that Peter actually was in the literal city of Babylon, which was described by Pliny and Josephus as a wilderness, even in Peter's time. And according to Josephus, all Jews had been expelled from the country of Babylonia. Those that argue for the literal Babylon here would say that there was a very small remnant of Jewish people still there and that Peter must have taken a missionary journey there. The case for Peter being in Jerusalem, and thereby referencing Jerusalem as Babylon here, is much stronger, and is the only argument with any biblical support. Peter's residence can firmly be established as him living in Jerusalem. After the great persecution, the church was scattered, but the apostles, i.e. Peter, stayed in Jerusalem, Acts 8 verse 1. When Philip preached in Samaria, the apostles at Jerusalem sent Peter and John to them. Thus, Peter must have been living there, Acts 8:14. When Herod Agrippa imprisoned Peter, he was in Jerusalem, Acts 12, 1-4. Three years after his conversion, Paul goes to Jerusalem to see Peter and even abides with him there. Therefore, Peter must have lived there, Galatians 1, 18. Fourteen years after his conversion, Paul again returns to Jerusalem with Barnabas and Titus. Peter is there again and even named as a pillar in the church at Jerusalem, Galatians 2, verses 1 and 9. Paul tells us that Peter was intimidated by the, quote, Jews from James, i.e. Jerusalem. Surely this would be because Peter's residence was there and that he had to live with these people. Galatians 2, 11, and 12. In the scripture in question, 1 Peter 5, 13, who is Marcus? If it is a reference to John Mark, then we presumably know that his original residence was in Jerusalem in the house of his mother. So if Marcus is John Mark, then the church would also be at Jerusalem. Acts 12, verse 12. On this next phrase, the great... The Bible commentator Adam Clark says, This woman is also called Babylon the Great. She is the exact antitype of the ancient Babylon in her idolatry and cruelty. But the ancient city called Babylon is only a drawing of her in miniature. This is indeed Babylon the Great. The next phrase is mother of harlots. We've already discussed the lack of the word all here, as in the mother of all harlots. Some try to make this phrase more than the text makes of it. The city is the mother of harlots. That is, that it has inhabitants that are harlots. This is one of the most consistent idioms in scripture, that cities have children, which are often referred to as daughters or children. One example we've already seen in the previous study was with Jesus, when on the road to be crucified, he says this, Daughters of Jerusalem, weep not for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. For behold, the days are coming in which they shall say, Blessed are the barren, and the wombs that never bear, and the paps which never gave suck. In Isaiah chapter 4, verse 4, when speaking of the institution of the millennial kingdom, it says this, When the Lord has washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion and purged the blood of Jerusalem from her midst by the spirit of judgment and by the spirit of burning. A side note here is that this purging of Jerusalem in the context of Isaiah chapter 4 happens just before the millennial reign, exactly the place that Mystery Babylon is judged in Revelation 16 through 19. This is strong support for an eschatological double fulfillment of the judgments of Jerusalem. Yet another example of the inhabitants of a city being referred to as children of that city can be found in another appropriate verse which we looked at last week. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stoned those who are sent to her, how often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. See, your house is left to you desolate. Next is this phrase, abominations of the earth. We see more parallels to Jerusalem here in Jeremiah chapter 6 where it says, Were they ashamed when they had committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed nor did they know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among those who fall. At the time I will punish them, they shall be cast down, says the Lord. Abominations are used pretty consistently in Scripture as things which are absolutely detestable to the Lord, but especially that of grievous idolatry and false worship. Of note here is the so-called abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel, Jesus, and Paul when the Antichrist declares himself to be God in the temple. 
So this is like the biggest abomination that's ever been. It is the granddaddy of all abominations, the worship of the Antichrist as God. All right, the next verse is Revelation 17, verse 6, and it says, And I saw the woman, drunken with the blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus, and when I saw her, I wondered with great admiration. This verse is one that is often used to prove that the woman is Rome, or Islam, or even an allegorical pagan system from time immemorial. The verse is simply talking about persecution. The woman here kills a lot of Christians. The commentators always try to prove that their version of Mystery Babylon has killed more than the other candidates of Mystery Babylon. And I suppose that whoever quotes the highest number of martyrs, accurate or not, wins. I suppose I too will join in this game, but unlike them, I have explicit biblical support that the worst persecution of all time will have its epicenter in Jerusalem. Speaking of the abomination of desolation which will occur at the Temple Mount in Jerusalem, Jesus says in Matthew 24, when you therefore see the abomination of desolation spoken of by Daniel the prophet stand in the holy place, whoso readeth, let him understand. Then let them which be in Judea flee into the mountains. Let him which is on the housetop not come down to take anything out of his house, neither let him which is in the field return back to take his clothes. And woe unto them that are with child, and to them that give suck in those days. But pray ye that your flight be not in the winter, neither on the Sabbath day. For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. And except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. So this killing will be so bad that if the days of it were not short, then none of the elect would even survive. Jesus also says that this will be more severe than any before it or any after it. Even if you believe that Matthew 24 is for the Jews, we know the people here are Christians because of the earlier point Jesus makes in verse 9 when he says, Then shall they deliver you up to be afflicted, and shall kill you, and ye shall be hated of all nations for my name's sake. In any case, it's the worst religious genocide of all time, and its epicenter is in the city of Jerusalem. The very fact the Lord is emphasizing the importance of fleeing quickly when they see the abomination of desolation here is proof that there will be many in Jerusalem that will not consider the Antichrist seating himself in the temple and declaring himself to be God to be an abomination at all. In fact, just the opposite. They apparently begin to carry out the Antichrist's orders to kill Christians at this point. The killing may indeed spread to the entire world from here, but the fact that its epicenter is in the city of Jerusalem is one of the most attested to prophetic events in the Bible. This next phrase, blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. It's not clear here whether John means two separate groups of people when he says blood of the saints and with the blood of the martyrs of Jesus. We do know that in addition to Christians, prophets are twice added to this list of those that Mystery Babylon kills. Revelation 18.24 says, And in her was found the blood of prophets and of saints and of all that were slain upon the earth. It is also notable that the two witnesses are called prophets in Revelation 11, and they are said to be killed in the city of Jerusalem. Revelation 11.8 says, And their bodies shall lie in the streets of the great city, which spiritually is called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. The city where our Lord was crucified is unambiguously Jerusalem. Okay, so Revelation 17.7 says, And the angel said unto me, Wherefore didst thou marvel? I will tell thee the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carrieth her, which hath seven heads and ten horns. So the angel here is going to tell John what it is he's been seeing so far. There are many examples in scripture of a prophet seeing a vision that they did not fully understand until the angel interprets the vision for them. We find examples of this in Daniel, Zechariah, and several times in the book of Revelation. This next phrase, and I will tell thee the mystery of the woman and of the beast that carrieth her, which has seven heads and ten horns. This is so important to keep in mind that there are two distinct characters in this vision. The woman, known as Mystery Babylon, and the seven-headed, ten-horned beast that she rides. 
Mystery Babylon, which the angel will later say is a city, is riding the seven-headed ten-horned beast, which is the Antichrist. This seven-headed ten-horned beast will later turn on her and kill her in Revelation 17, 12 through 16. I emphasize that these two are distinct because some folks, when studying these passages that we'll be talking about today, forget this distinction, and failing to see that can cause an incorrect understanding of this prophecy. Moving on to verse 8. The beast that thou sawest was, and is not, and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit, and go into perdition. And they that dwell on the earth shall wonder, whose names were not written in the book of life from the foundation of the world, when they behold the beast that was, and is not, and yet is. So the angel begins to talk to John about the seven-headed ten-horned beast that is mentioned in the previous verse. Let's also go back to the very beginning of this particular vision in Revelation 17, where we can see the full description that John gives to the seven-headed ten-horned beast. He says that it is scarlet-colored, full of names of blasphemy, and having seven heads and ten horns. Here we also pick up the additional information that this seven-headed ten-horned beast was also scarlet and was full of names of blasphemy. This is the same description given to the beast four chapters earlier in Revelation chapter 13, which is about the Antichrist. The beast in that chapter also has seven heads, ten horns, and has names of blasphemy. This is not coincidental, nor is it the only time in our verse, Revelation 17, 8, that there is an explicit reference to Revelation chapter 13 about the Antichrist beast. In fact, I intend to show that almost no new information is given by the angel in this verse. The new information from the angel about this beast will come after this verse, but verse 8 here almost serves as a very long reintroduction to the Antichrist beast of Revelation 13, using titles and descriptions of him that are already clearly established. Take, for example, the part of this verse that says that those that, quote, dwell on the earth, or the earth dwellers, which is a kind of technical term for those that are unsaved, as it clarifies here by adding that, quote, their names are not written in the book of life. These earth dwellers will worship the beast that was and is not and yet is. Now, this is not new information to John in Revelation 17, because he wrote the exact same description of the beast in Revelation 13 using identical language. For example, Revelation 13, 8 says, And all that dwell upon the earth shall worship him, whose names are not written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. The angel, back in our verse, is calling to remembrance the beast that John has already seen with these exact phrases and descriptions. We will see that even the little things, like the earth dwellers, quote, wondering in Revelation 17, 8, is also a reference to them wondering at the beast in chapter 13. This next phrase, was and is not and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition. This phrase gives people a great deal of difficulty, and so we will spend quite a lot of time on it. I intend to show that this idea of was and is not and coming out of the bottomless pit is a title referring to the Antichrists having been miraculously healed or resurrected from the dead. The last phrase in this verse, the beast that was and is not and yet is, being another way to say the exact same thing. That is, that he lives, he dies, and he seems to rise again, and will ultimately go to destruction or perdition. It's sort of a chronology of his entire career on earth, and it functions as a title on several occasions in the book of Revelation. Before I begin to explain the details of this, we need to refresh our memories to the significance that the Bible puts on the seeming resurrection of the Antichrist from the dead. Let's review Revelation chapter 13, which is primarily about the Antichrist, to make sure we understand this preliminary idea. In the relatively short chapter of Revelation 13, it mentions three times the fatal wound of the Antichrist beast that was healed. The first instance being in verse 3. It says, And I saw one of his heads, as it were wounded to death, and his deadly wound was healed. And all the world wondered after the beast, and they worshipped the dragon, which gave power unto the beast. And they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like unto the beast? Who is able to make war with him? 
It seems to imply here that the world's worship of the beast is directly connected to his deadly wound being healed. It says that they wondered after him, saying, who can make war with him? This is the exact same word used in our current verse, wondered, and it is in the exact same context. That is, wonder from the earth dwellers associated with worship and the resurrection of the dead. This is one of the first descriptions of the Antichrist that we are given in the book of Revelation. Right after the symbolic imagery of verse 1 and 2, this is the first thing that we are told about the beast, that he has a deadly wound that is healed. The Bible, as we will see, considers this event very important, if not preeminent. By the second reference of this event in verse 12, the idea of a healed deadly wound has become a title or identifying description of the beast. Here it distinguishes between the first beast from the second by adding the clarification whose deadly wound was healed. And so it says in Revelation 13, 12, And he, speaking of the false prophet, exerciseth all the power of the first beast, that is, the Antichrist before him, and causes all the earth and them that dwell therein to worship the first beast whose deadly wound was healed. And here in the third reference in 1314, we see that the healed deadly wound is again used as a title or distinguishing characteristic of the Antichrist beast. Here it says, and speaking of the false prophet here, he deceiveth him that dwell on the earth by the means of those miracles which he had the power to do in the sight of the beast, saying to them that dwell on the earth that they should make an image to the beast which had the wound by the sword and did live. So here again, we see this idea of a resurrection being used as a title to distinguish which beast they're talking about. So this phrase, was and is not, and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit, is basically just another way of saying the same thing. It is an identifier as to which beast we're talking about. It's the one that was, lived, is not, died, and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit, or come back from the dead. Arthur Pink, an early English Bible scholar who wrote extensively on the Antichrist, agrees. He says the following, A further reference to the resurrection of the Antichrist is coming forth from the bottomless pit is found in Revelation 17.8. It is to be noted that the earth dwellers wonder when they behold the beast that was alive and is not now alive and yet is raised again. The world will then be presented with the spectacle of a man raised from the dead. Pink, as well as many other people, associate the phrase coming out of the bottomless pit in Revelation 17.8 with the apparent resurrection of the Antichrist in Revelation 13. We will see explicit biblical proof of this interpretation at the end of today's study. The Bible uses the word abyss, which is translated here as bottomless pit in many different ways. It is a prison for spirits in Mark chapter 5. It's almost synonymous with the abode of the dead in the Old Testament. This word abyss is also the same word that the Apostle Paul uses to describe where Jesus went during at least part of the three days in which he was dead before he resurrected. For context, I'll start at verse 6 of Romans 10, 6, and 7. But the righteousness, which is of faith, speaketh on this wise, Say not in thine heart, who shall ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down from above? Or, who shall descend into the deep, that word there is abyss, that is, to bring up Christ again from the dead? So, the same word for bottomless pit or abyss is also the place where Christ came out of when he resurrected. We find more detail on this event in Acts 2, verses 27 through 32. This is during Pentecost, where Peter will start off in this quote by quoting from the Old Testament. He says, Because thou wilt not leave my soul in hell, that word there is Hades, neither wilt thou suffer thine holy one to see corruption. Thou hast made known to me the ways of life, thou shalt make me full of joy with thy countenance. Then he continues, Men and brethren, let me freely speak unto you of the patriarch David, that he is both dead and buried, and his sepulture is with us unto this day. Therefore, being a prophet, and knowing that God has sworn with an oath to him, that of the fruit of his loins, according to the flesh, he would raise up Christ to sit on the throne. He, seeing this before, spake of the resurrection of Christ, that his soul was not left in hell, again Hades here, neither his flesh did see corruption. This Jesus has God raised up, whereof we are all witnesses. Now, this is interesting because here the word Hades was mentioned as the place where Jesus' soul went when he died, when Paul says that it was the abyss. 
but we can see that contextually they are both talking about the place where Jesus' soul went during his death. My point is not to do an exhaustive theological study on the subject, but only to show you that Jesus went to the abyss at some point during his death. He may have also went to other locations in Hades, such as Paradise or even Tartarus. There are more references to this event in which I will leave for you to study further. Ephesians 4, 8-10, 1 Peter 3, 18-20, 2 Peter 2, 4-5, Matthew 12, 38-45, Luke 23, 43. My only point is that coming up from the abyss can be shown from scripture to mean resurrection from the dead. So, these phrases are used like a title referring to the Antichrist's apparent resurrection from the dead. It is as if it's a chronology of his career and a title at the same time. He is the beast that lives, dies, resurrects, and ultimately meets his doom in perdition or in the lake of fire in Revelation 19.20. So I would suggest that the following phrases are all referring to not only the same person, the Antichrist, but the same identifying event in that person's life, his apparent resurrection. The beast that was and is not and yet is. The beast that was and is not and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition. The first beast whose deadly wound was healed. The beast which had the wound by the sword and did live. The beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit. And one more very interesting one that we will look at later. I should briefly mention before I get into this next point that I'm not dogmatic about it. And if you disagree with me, it won't matter in the big picture of our study of these great chapters of Revelation 17 and 18. But it is my conviction that the Antichrist is not being referred to in another passage in Revelation 9 during the fifth trumpet, even though the bottomless pit is mentioned there as well. It's in Revelation 9 verse 11 and it says, And they had a king over them, which is the angel of the bottomless pit, whose name in the Hebrew tongue is Abaddon, but in the Greek tongue hath his name Apollyon. First, it should be noted that this angel is nowhere said to be itself from the bottomless pit, or having come out of the bottomless pit. It is simply ruling over and directing the beings that do come out of it, and making sure that they do what they are supposed to. RevelationCommentary.org notes, quote, The angel of the abyss is identified as king over the horrible locust-like creatures. The exact identity of this angel is not certain. The particular grammatical construction, genitive of subordination here, indicates that this angel is over the bottomless pit. It does not say that the angel is from the bottomless pit. There are many reasons that I don't see these two figures, the angel named Abaddon or Apollyon, and the beast we know as Antichrist being the same. A few reasons would be that this passage in Revelation 9 would constitute the only time in Scripture that the Antichrist is referred to as an angel and not a man. It would also be the only verse in Scripture that connects the Antichrist with things like the fifth trumpet, or ruling over a five-month physical torment of only wicked people, or his name being destroyer. It seems much more likely that this passage should simply be taken at face value. The fifth trumpet here about the locusts being let out to torment those who do not have the seal of God for five months seems to be no different than the other trumpet or bold judgments in the sense that they have mostly godly angels oversee the destruction of the wicked. I see no reason that this should be taken out of the context of the simplicity and limited nature of the fifth trumpet. All that has happened in the fifth trumpet is that the destroying angel, that's what Abaddon and Apollyon means, oversees the entities that torment the earth, an event that lasts for five months and five months alone. That's it. There's no other mention of this angel as having further purpose in the end-time scenario. It may very well be that the entities that are let out of the abyss are demonic spirits, but the angel who rules over them makes sure that they only target the ungodly and only for five months. The function of this angel is like the destroying angel of Exodus, in the sense that the godly are passed over to kill the ungodly. 
And almost no one disagrees that in Exodus, it was an angel of God, if not God himself, designated as the destroying angel. Or consider 1 Chronicles 21.15, where we see an unambiguous case of a godly angel designated as a destroying angel. This is where David had sinned in the taking of the census. It says, And God sent an angel unto Jerusalem to destroy it, and he was destroying. The Lord beheld, and he repented him of the evil. And he said to the angel that destroyed, It is enough, stay now thine hand. And the angel of the Lord stood by the threshing floor of Ornan and the Jebusite. And David lifted up his eyes and saw the angel of the Lord stand between the earth and the heaven, having a drawn sword in his hand stretched out over Jerusalem. Again, I'm not dogmatic about that, and it doesn't matter if you agree or disagree with that in the grand scheme of things. So, back in Revelation 17:8, the angel is about to explain some very interesting details to John about the seven-headed beast that John saw. But this entire verse is basically preliminary. It is simply the restating of the characteristics of the beast in Revelation 13, as to clarify that the beast he saw is the same one he saw in a previous vision. But before we can get to the new information about the beast, there is one more aspect of this verse that must be covered. There are a lot of interpretations that, even though they might understand that these phrases like the beast that was and is not and yet is, is referring to the Antichrist resurrection, they will say that the tense of the verses make it necessary for the Antichrist to have lived before the time of John. They will say that since John wrote in the late first century, the past tense of the word was in the first part of the phrase, i.e. the beast that was, means that the beast that will come to live in the future as Antichrist must have lived sometime before the time of John. Common candidates proposed in this scenario are Judas or Nimrod. Again, they're saying that the beast that is yet to come must have been dead already when John was writing. This, I believe, can lead to any number of wrong conclusions about the identity of the Antichrist. They fail to see that John consistently uses these phrases like the beast that was and is not and yet is as a title for the beast of his visions. Visions in which he sees all the way to the end of knowable time in some cases. Yet he never ceases to refer to everything he sees as having happened in the past. For instance, even the New Jerusalem's descent in Revelation 21, which almost universally is considered to be a future event, must have already descended in the first century, if this was the correct way to view the text. Because John said, quote, And I saw, past tense, the holy city in New Jerusalem coming down. But more to the specific point about the phrases like was and is not and yet is, if you apply this consistently to the other titles that refer to the Antichrist resurrection, the theory that the beast must have already existed, like Judas or Nimrod, would quickly break down. So here we have this list of these titles, such as the beast that was and is not and yet is, the beast that was and is not and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit and go into perdition, the first beast whose deadly wound was healed, the beast which had the wound by the sword and did live, the beast that ascendeth out of the bottomless pit. So if we applied this first century tense idea to these other passages, we must also conclude that the Antichrist not only has lived and died by the time of John, but that his wound had to have already been healed in the first century as well, as it is also referred to in the past tense by John. This would of course not be agreed upon by those making this claim, as they would not say that this pre-John character has risen from the dead yet, they would only say that he would have already died before John's time. The answer here is to realize that phrases like the beast that was and is not and yet is, or the beast which had the wound by the sword and did live, or the first beast whose deadly wound was healed, have the same function as being a way to refer to the Antichrist and the event that comes to define not just his life, but the entire end times course of events. And the tense being used is the exact tense you would expect from someone who was trying to refer back 
to an event that he saw in a vision that consisted of future events. We will see again proof of this in our last verse today. Okay, so we're finally ready to move on to the next verse. I'm going to take verses 9 and 10 together because, as we will see, they're kind of a package deal. So, this is when the angel begins to tell us more about the seven-headed, ten-horned beast. First, there's this phrase, here is the mind which hath wisdom. I still haven't figured out what this phrase means or why it's here. Uh, it says the same thing earlier when it's talking about the mark of the beast. It says, here is wisdom, let him that hath understanding count the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man, and his number is 600, three score and six. I think maybe it has something to do with how the next idea should be viewed, but again, I'm not sure. I bet the answer is somewhere in the Old Testament, but I don't know. So let's move on to the next idea in this verse. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sitteth, and there are seven kings. Now we come to what I believe is a really misunderstood passage. You may remember that in the first week, I said that I've found something like 90 plus characteristics so far of Mystery Babylon. Well, a lot of commentators really seem to think that there's just one characteristic of Mystery Babylon that they have to make fit in their interpretation. And that is that the city of Mystery Babylon must sit on seven hills, which they derive from their interpretation of this verse. Often they will say that this city on seven hills is Rome, which is famous for its seven hills, but it doesn't stop those who think that Mystery Babylon is Mecca or even Jerusalem from claiming that their city also sits on seven hills. The only problem is, is that this is not what this verse is talking about at all. There are many ways to show that this is true, grammatically, contextually, logically, and by comparing scripture with other scripture. Let's start with grammar. The key is in this phrase, and there are seven kings. And that's how it reads in the King James Version, which I've been doing this study in. Other versions render this with a very important distinction. They say that the seven heads of the beast are seven mountains, and the angel further defines these mountains as being seven kings as well, such as the ESV has it here. It says they are also seven kings. You can see the difference. The King James gives us the impression that the angel begins to talk about a totally separate thing when it talks about the kings, where the ESV defines the seven mountains as seven kings and then begins to give further information about these kings, which we will look at later. Well, the question is, which one is right? Now, you should know that this difference in translation is not an issue with the underlying Greek texts, like the Textus Receptus or the Westcott and Hort. The Greek texts say the exact same thing here, so it's not one of those issues. This issue is simply a matter of translator error. There is near universal agreement among Bible scholars that the grammar here is saying these seven mountains are in fact seven kings. Here we see that this is the way it is translated in almost every major English Bible. Grammatically, the reason for this is that the Greek word eisen, here translated there are, is the third person plural of imi, meaning I am, which should be rendered they are. When describing the ten horns a few verses later, a similar phrase occurs. There, the King James Version and the New King James Version translate the phrase correctly, without substituting there for they, as is done in verse 10. Now, I am not a Greek scholar, and I would not want anyone to believe me based on my explaining this to you grammatically. So, let's move on to showing that the angel is telling us that the seven heads are seven kings by context of the passage and by comparing scripture with other scripture. I want to start by reiterating that all the other times in this chapter, chapter 17, that the seven-headed beast with ten horns is mentioned, it seems to go out of its way to use phrases that are used back in Revelation 13. And we saw that the beast in our chapter, Revelation 17, has many of the same characteristics as the one we looked at in Revelation 13. They both have seven heads, ten horns. They both had names of blasphemy on their heads. They both were referred to by their having been killed yet living. They both have earth dwellers wonder at them when they see their apparent resurrection. 
They both have people whose names were not written in the Book of Life worship them. I know this seems almost obvious, but you should know that the view that the seven mountains are seven hills of a city prevents people from seeing this most basic point. Our passage goes on to say that one of these heads, which are kings, is the same was and is not king talked about in Revelation 13, which gets the mortal wound. So let's flip back to Revelation 13:3 and check it out. It says, One of its heads seemed to have a mortal wound, but its mortal wound was healed, and the whole earth marveled as they followed the beast. So you see here that one of the beast's seven heads is referred to as having a mortal wound. This is an exact match with our verse back in Revelation 17, with the seven mountains being seven kings. If you're willing to admit that Revelation 17:9 about the mountains and kings has nothing to do with physical hills in Rome, or Mecca, or anywhere else. I mean, do we really think that one of the hills in Rome is going to be mortally wounded, and then come back to life, and everyone is going to marvel at one of the hills in Rome, and then begin to worship a particular hill in Rome? That's what you have to believe, or you can just not believe that Revelation 17 and Revelation 13 are talking about the same seven-headed, ten-horned beast with names of blasphemy that receive a mortal wound and are raised again from the dead and the earth dwellers worship him. I mean, it's, it's obviously a connection that you have to disregard if you want to have these heads be hills in Rome. Okay, moving on to the next phrase, five of whom have fallen, one is and the other has not yet come. Now this will explain how this seven-headed beast and its heads work. The question I always had with this was, if the seven-headed, ten-horned beast was supposed to be the Antichrist, how come only one of the heads of this Antichrist seems to be in view? The Bible kind of unapologetically disregards the other six heads of this beast as basically unimportant, and really only tells us about one of these heads, that somehow both the entire beast and this one specific head are called the Antichrist. Well, this verse will explain that issue. First of all, this idea of five of whom have fallen, one is and the other has not yet come. So five of these kings have fallen. Fallen, among other things, is a biblical term for having died. Exodus 32, 28, 1 Samuel 4, 10, 2 Samuel 1, 19, 1 Chronicles 5, 10. One is, presumably, currently living in John's day, and one is yet to come. The beast is the spirit of Antichrist that has manifested itself in the form of kings, particularly Antichrist-like kings throughout history. In 1 John 2, 18, John says, Children, it is the last hour, and as you have heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many antichrists have come. Therefore, we know that it is the last hour. These five fallen antichrist-type kings, I believe, can be determined using no other tool than the Bible. These would be kings that are basically obvious types of the antichrist. For example, Pharaoh during the time of the Exodus, or people like Nebuchadnezzar, who built an image of himself and forced everyone to worship it or be killed, could be a candidate or Nimrod, the first world government leader, or Antiochus Epiphanes, who Daniel spent so much time describing. is clearly a type of antichrist with his setting himself in the temple and declaring himself to be God. I'm not going to attempt to give you a perfect list of these kings, but I will say that I think that they can be determined using the Bible alone. Some will say that these heads are not physical kings, but rather kingdoms. They do this by adding a step to the angel's interpretation of the seven heads of the beast. The angel says the seven heads are seven mountains, which are seven kings. But they will add a step to this and say that the seven kings are seven kingdoms. They rationalize this by pointing out that in the book of Daniel, kings and kingdoms are pretty much interchangeable terms. Often, before they will take you to our verse in Revelation 17, they will have you agree to the condition that kings mean kingdoms. If you agree, they will have you flip to Revelation 17 and say, 
Well, then we know that these kings are not kings, but actually seven kingdoms. This, I believe, is not a good way to interpret the Bible. One reason I think this is that if John wanted to say kingdoms, he had the vocabulary to do so. He certainly does so in other places in the book of Revelation when he refers to the kingdom of Antichrist and various other situations. Another issue is that John is a different writer than Daniel, and he uses the word kings a few times to refer to an obvious individual king. And in Revelation 10, verse 11, he even seems to contrast the kings with kingdoms or nations. He says, and he said unto me, Thou must prophesy again before many peoples and nations and tongues and kings. But I think the obvious thing is that the Antichrist in Daniel, Matthew 24, and the parallel passages, 2 Thessalonians, and Revelation is always referred to as a man. He does things that only a man can do. He sits in a temple in Jerusalem and declares himself to be God. He is called a man on several occasions. It says he won't regard the God of his fathers. I could go on, but my point is, is that it takes twice as much effort to make the Antichrist be a kingdom than it does a king. Unfortunately, there are entire systems of theology that rely on this kings equal kingdoms issue. So you'll have certain groups go to great lengths here to interpret the Bible in an allegorical way to make this king mean kingdom. I would say that the Antichrist will be part of and control specific kingdoms, which is important to the book of Daniel and to the book of Revelation. But the fact that there is a man that moves and rules those kingdoms is attested to over and over again in scripture. Moving on to this phrase, one is. Uh, again, I'm not going to speculate as to which king was the manifestation of the Antichrist in John's day, as I honestly don't know myself. Some speculate that it was Nero, and I think that's a good possibility, but I've not decided on what my view is on this point yet. So I'll move on to the next verse, which is, the other has not yet come. This is one that I think we can have more explicit biblical information about. And I will include this phrase as we move on to the final verse that we'll be looking at today, verse 11. So this future head, this future king, this future manifestation of the beast has at least one specific characteristic mentioned here. It, quote, must continue a short space. This phrase, I believe, is strong evidence that the king that is future is the one that has the fatal wound and yet lives, the Antichrist head, the head we've been discussing in Revelation 13, the one that so much time is spent on. This idea of a short space is good evidence to that effect, in my opinion. By far, the most talked about time period in Bible prophecy is the three and a half years in which the Antichrist is given to do his thing. It makes reference to this exact period seven times in scripture and talks about the details of it in many more places. It refers to this three and a half year period in the following ways, 42 months, 1,260 days, and a time times and half a time. It refers to this time period as being a quote short time as well. In fact, using the exact words used in Revelation 17.10 when it says in Revelation 12.12, Therefore rejoice ye heavens and ye that dwell in them, woe unto the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea, for the devil has come down unto you, having great wrath, because he knoweth that he hath but a short time. This idea that he must continue a short time seems to match up well with the references about the Antichrist, who has the mortal wound and lives. It says in Revelation 13.5, And there was given unto him a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies, and power was given unto him to continue forty and two months. Rarely are characteristics of the Antichrist found in only one verse. This idea is backed up in several places. Daniel 7.25 says, And he shall speak great words against the Most High, and shall wear out the saints of the Most High, and think to change the times and laws, and they shall be given unto his hand until the time and times and the dividing of time. I would propose that the idea of, quote, short space is referring back to the short space given for the dragon to continue in Revelation 12 and the three and a half year period given to the Antichrist in Revelation 13. It is also to be noticed that three and a half years is an extremely short time for a king to rule. 
other people that want to make the future head, the future king, one that has already been alive in the past, like Nimrod or Judas, will propose that the yet-to-come king of Revelation 17.10 was Hitler, but Hitler ruled about 12 years. The reign of Antichrist is short because it needs to be short. Jesus said of these three and a half years, which start just as the Antichrist declares himself to be God in the temple, quote, For then shall be great tribulation, such as was not since the beginning of the world to this time, no, nor ever shall be. And except those days should be shortened, there should no flesh be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days shall be shortened. Moving on to Revelation 17, verse 11, the last verse. And the beast that was and is not, even he is the eighth and is of the seven, and goeth into perdition. Notice first the similarity to this verse, and the one we looked at earlier in Revelation 17.8. 17.8 says, The beast that thou sawest was, and is not, and shall ascend out of the bottomless pit, and goeth into perdition. 17.11 says, And the beast that was, and is not, even he is the eighth, and is of the seven, and goeth into perdition. The difference here is the middle of these two verses, the part about the resurrection. In 17.8, it describes the resurrection as, quote, ascending out of the bottomless pit. In verse 11, the part that says, even he is the eighth and is of the seven, is not only, as we will see, being used to convey the exact same thing, that is, the resurrection portion of the Antichrist chronology, but it is also giving us more information about this event. This phrase, even he is the eighth and is of the seven, is saying that though there are only seven kings, there will be eight reigns. That is, one of these kings will rule twice. The resurrection of Antichrist explains how there can be eight reigns and only seven kings. This is almost universally considered to be speaking of a resurrection of one of the dead kings to rule twice. In other words, he will be the eighth king while never ceasing to be one of the seven kings. So this gives great credibility to the earlier interpretation that this phrase is a technical title of the beast in Revelation 13 and that the bottomless pit in verse 8 is a reference to the beast's resurrection, just as the phrase, even he is the eight and is of the seven, is a reference to the resurrection. And all of it is packaged in an identical word structure so that we can be confident of our interpretation that this is a title of the Antichrist that refers to his most identifiable trait, his apparent resurrection. Before I conclude the study, I want to read the entire passage that we studied today in context. And because of the translation issue in verse 9, I'm going to be reading from the ESV instead of the usual King James Version. So it says in Revelation 17, 7 through 11, But the angel said to me, Why do you marvel? I will tell you the mystery of the woman, and the beast with seven heads and ten horns that carries her. The beast that you saw was, and is not, and is about to rise from the bottomless pit and go to destruction, and the dwellers on the earth whose names have not been written in the book of life from the foundation of the world will marvel to see the beast, because it was, and is not, and is to come. This calls for a mind of wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen. One is, and the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. I want to take a break from the verse-by-verse -verse format and discuss some of the common objections to the interpretation of Mystery Babylon being the eschatological city of Jerusalem. In other words, the Jerusalem that embraces the Antichrist in the end times. I was planning on waiting until I got to the relevant verses in the course of our verse-by-verse study to discuss the usual objections that come up, but some of these points don't come up until very late in chapter 18, and I wanted to address these issues before that, and in a comprehensive way. I suppose part of my goal here is to prevent anyone from not continuing in this verse-by-verse -verse study because they think that I haven't considered some of the best arguments against this theory. So, the arguments that I will be covering are as follows. Number one, how can Mystery Babylon be the eschatological city of Jerusalem if it is said to be, quote, found no more in Revelation 18.21? 
and we know that Jerusalem is a big part of the millennial reign and the eternal kingdom. Number two, when speaking of the Babylonian destruction of Jerusalem, Ezekiel 5.9 says, quote, And because of all your abominations, I will do with you what I have never yet done, and the like of which I will never do again. Does this mean that Jerusalem will not be judged again? And number three, is there a future judgment of Jerusalem in Scripture? And number four, is this theory anti-Semitic somehow? How does this affect our views towards Israel, if at all? Okay, let's start with number one. This is one of the best arguments against this theory, in my opinion, and it's rooted in the following verse. Revelation 18.21 says, And a mighty angel took up a stone, like a great millstone, and cast it into the sea, saying, Thus with violence shall the great city Babylon be thrown down, and shall be found no more at all. The argument is that Jerusalem can't be Mystery Babylon because it says that it shall be found, quote, no more at all. And we know that Jerusalem is in the millennial reign. We also see the so-called New Jerusalem in the Eternal Kingdom. This is a very good argument, and it requires a very good answer. How can I say on one hand that Jerusalem will be destroyed and found no more, and on the other hand say that it will be around forever? The answer, I believe, lies in the last eight chapters of the book of Ezekiel. There you will find one of the most intricate, detailed building plans for the Israel of the Millennial Reign. It contains chapters and chapters of technical detail regarding how Israel will be divided, about a new temple complex, and about Jerusalem and its surrounding areas. To say that this is a bit different than what we currently know is a bit of an understatement. There are those that have taken all the technical specifications of things like the division of the land in the Millennial Reign and plotted it all out on a map. The 12 tribes of Israel are given parallel, rectangular allotments of land, one on top of another, from north to the south. And each tribe's allotment extends the entire east-west border of Israel. It really helps to see all this in a map to visualize what I'm saying. In the middle of these allotments of land is a rectangular portion that Ezekiel calls the, quote, holy portion. The priests and Levites that service the temple equally divide this land. There is some debate as to where exactly the temple is in this section. Some say that it is in the middle of this land. Others say it is just north of the city. But it doesn't appear to be actually in the city itself, which is very different in and of itself. The city of Jerusalem is also very different in the millennium, including most likely its physical location, which we will talk about in more detail later. For starters, it is perfectly square. It is about nine times larger than the old city of Jerusalem today. It has 12 gates, three on each side. It sits on a high plateau. It has two rivers that flow from it. The one on its east side flows to the Dead Sea, and the one on its west flows all the way to the Mediterranean Sea. It is a different place. In fact, the last words in the book of Ezekiel are used to give this Jerusalem a different name. It says, quote, it was round about 18,000 measures, and the name of the city from that day shall be, The Lord is there. This is sometimes transliterated as Yahweh Shema, which means the Lord is there. The temple in the millennium, regardless of where it resides, is absolutely huge, and is a study in and of itself that you may find very interesting. For instance, there's no wall of partition to exclude Gentiles, and no veil in the Holy of Holies. I found it interesting that the Temple Institute, that is, the Jewish people in Israel that are seeking to rebuild the temple, said the following of this structure on their website, templeinstitute.org. Quote, Many aspects of the temple described by Ezekiel are difficult to comprehend, since that vision contains elements of prophetic insight, which, in our generation, we do not have the spiritual or intellectual capacity to understand. For example, according to the prophecy of Ezekiel, the structure of the third temple will necessitate vast topographical changes in the environs of Jerusalem. This temple will differ drastically in the size from its predecessors. According to Ezekiel's measurement, the new temple will be so large that it will occupy the entire area of the city of Jerusalem. Ezekiel's prophecy explains that both the Temple Mount and the Mount of Olives will be enlarged and expanded in the future. The city of Jerusalem's actual location in the millennium is a matter of some debate. 
but you should know that the people that I'm about to cite have no theological reason for saying that the location of Jerusalem in the millennial period is in a different location than the present city of Jerusalem. They do not, as far as I know, consider Mystery Babylon to be the eschatological city of Jerusalem. They are simply trying to map out some of the details that Ezekiel gives in these eight chapters. The International Standard Bible Encyclopedia gives two options based on the text, both of them south of Jerusalem, one of them at Bethlehem, and the other is a little further north, but still south of Jerusalem, at modern-day Ramat Rahel. Another researcher puts forward a good case for the Millennial Jerusalem, or Yahweh Shema, being located at Shiloh. Even if Yahweh Shema, the new city, sat right on top of the old Jerusalem, we must at least conclude that it is nine times larger than the current city. So, it obviously does not contain the same physical landmarks and boundaries as the previous Jerusalem. And we know from various places in the Bible that it will sit on a large raised platform, a long plateau which makes it visible from a very long way off. I've also already mentioned that two rivers flow from it on either side, so we know that it's geographically not exactly the same either. So we start to get the idea that God will willingly call this city Jerusalem, regardless of it having the same borders, geography, or physical location. Take, for example, the New Jerusalem of Revelation 21 of the Eternal Kingdom. It's called Jerusalem as well, despite it being a whopping 1,500 miles long. Some, such as amillennialists, try to make the New Jerusalem of the Eternal Kingdom, that is, the time period after the millennial reign, equal with Ezekiel's Jerusalem, based on the fact that they both have 12 gates named for the 12 tribes and a few other issues. The differences, however, are far greater than the similarities. For example, consider the size. The New Jerusalem is about 1,500 miles wide, which would encompass most of the countries in the Middle East. This is compared to Ezekiel's nine-mile square city and the current one-mile old city. Some other notable differences are that the New Jerusalem comes down from heaven, while Ezekiel's Jerusalem is located in Israel on earth. There is no temple in the New Jerusalem. It says that God and the Lamb are its temple while the temple in the book of Ezekiel is huge and is located north of the city. There is no sin, nothing impure will ever enter the new Jerusalem, while daily sin offerings are made in the temple in Ezekiel's version. There is no more death in the new Jerusalem, while there is still death in the book of Ezekiel, also Isaiah 65.20. There are no natural beings in the new Jerusalem, only the perfected, and there are natural beings in the book of Ezekiel. I mention all this to be able to say the following. God has no problem calling the new Jerusalem Jerusalem, even though it clearly isn't tied to the exact place that the current Jerusalem is. And the same thing is true with the city called Yahweh Shema. It can be the millennial Jerusalem, even though the old location has been apparently destroyed. In fact, I think that the judgment of the old city of Jerusalem described in the following passages actually creates the topographical changes, such as the plateau and the rivers that run through the land. Revelation 16, 18-19 says, And there were voices and thunders and lightnings, and there was a great earthquake, such as was not since men were upon the earth, so mighty an earthquake and so great. And the great city was divided into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And great Babylon came in remembrance before God, to give unto her the cup of the wine of the fierceness of his wrath. An interesting side note, this verse actually contrasts the so-called great city, that is mystery Babylon, with the quote, cities of the nations. This is a way to designate that the great city is a non-Gentile city. An example of this distinction in scripture is found in Ezekiel 5 verse 5, where it says, Thus saith the Lord God, This is Jerusalem. I have set it in the midst of the nations and the countries that are round about her. I also find this quote from Jeremiah about the destruction of Jerusalem from the Babylonians provocative considering the title Great City. Jeremiah 22, 8-9 says, And many nations shall pass by this city, and they shall say every man to his neighbor, Wherefore hath the Lord done thus unto this great city? 
Then they shall answer, Because they have forsaken the covenant of the Lord their God, and worshipped other gods and served them. We will also see in our next study how this term, the great city, referring to Mystery Babylon, is used by John to unambiguously describe sinful Jerusalem in another place in the book of Revelation. I would also make the case that the reason the Lord splits the Mount of Olives, despite much confusion on this issue, is to make an escape route out of the old city of Jerusalem for the faithful remnant of Jews that are alive after the time of Jacob's trouble. Consider in context this passage in the book of Zechariah. And his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. And the Mount of Olives shall cleave in the midst thereof toward the east and toward the west. And there shall be a very great valley, and half of the mountain shall remove toward the north, and half of it toward the south. And ye shall flee to the valley of the mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach unto Ezel. Yea, ye shall flee, like as ye fled from before the earthquake in the days of Uzziah the king of Judah. And the Lord my God shall come, and all the saints with thee. Why is the Lord getting the faithful to flee from Jerusalem with such extravagant measures in this moment of triumph? Is it because of the earthquake that is about to split the city into three parts described in Revelation 16? Essentially, the old city of Jerusalem will be judged towards taking for itself the king known as Antichrist, among other things. It will be found no more. But a more glorious city of Jerusalem, with a different size, location, and topography, will continue at least until the point of the eternal kingdom, when once again a different kind of Jerusalem will overshadow the former. The next biblical objection to this theory is found in Ezekiel 5 verse 9, where it says, And because of all your abominations, I will do with you what I have never yet done, and the like of which I will never do again. In context, this prophecy was about the Babylonian conquest of Jerusalem. People will say, how can Jerusalem be judged again if God said that he would never do the like again to Jerusalem? First of all, God does not say that he will never judge Israel or Jerusalem ever again. He says that he will never do it again like he has done with the Babylonians. A similar promise can be seen in the book of Genesis, chapter 9, verse 11, where it says, And I will establish my covenant with you. Neither shall all flesh be cut off any more by the waters of a flood. Neither shall there any more be a flood to destroy the earth. God does not say in these passages that he won't judge them at all anymore, only that he won't judge them in that way again. In fact, there are explicit promises to judge both Jerusalem and the world again, as we will see later on, albeit not by means of a flood. The second point that I'd like to make is that this passage in Ezekiel 5 verse 9 is difficult for all commentators, regardless of their theological positions, because the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD and the destruction of Jerusalem by the Babylonians were actually very similar events in the way that they were destroyed. They both were besieged by their enemies, which created terrible conditions of famine and disease inside the city before the enemies ever got in. In both cases, those that didn't die from the disease or famine died from the sword, just as prophesied in Ezekiel 5 verse 12. And in both cases, a remnant that was not killed was scattered, creating a diaspora, just as prophesied in Ezekiel 5 9. It is such a close fit that this issue has become synonymous with the idea of a double fulfillment of prophecy. In fact, if you look up dual fulfillment on Wikipedia, you'll see that this is one of only three examples that are given for dual prophecies in the Bible. I would submit that there are many more, but I wanted to point out that these destructions are very similar. This similarity gives Bible scholars a difficult time in light of the passage in question, Ezekiel 5.9. But, ironically, it poses no problem whatsoever to the theory that Mystery Babylon is Jerusalem. In fact, I would submit that the destruction of Jerusalem that I'm talking about, the one described in the Mystery Babylon passages, is the only destruction that can be said to be 180 degrees different from the previous destructions of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar in 597 BC and Titus in 70 AD. For instance, four times in Revelation 18, it mentions the destruction of Mystery Babylon occurs in one day or one hour, Revelation 18, 8, 10, 17, and 19. 
This is in sharp contrast to the previous long and drawn out sieges of Jerusalem. This destruction of Mystery Babylon is accomplished by a combination of number one, the biggest earthquake of all time. Number two, great hail from heaven. Number three, the kings of the earth who burn her with fire. In fact, fire in various forms is mentioned another three times. And while fire is also mentioned as a part of the destruction of Jerusalem by Nebuchadnezzar, and in a lesser way during the 70 AD destruction, the fires in those cases were set after the conquest was over, and no mention of death by fire was recorded. This is in contrast to the text mentioning four times the fires as a primary agent of destruction of Mystery Babylon. In addition, Ezekiel makes it clear that the method that God used for the previous destructions of Jerusalem were sword, famine, and pestilence, and there could be no doubt that this is where the destruction came from in the previous cases. This one-day or one-hour destruction of Mystery Babylon and its close proximity to the millennium in Revelation 18 also has no room for the scattering to the winds of the remnant Jews, as was the case in 597 BC and 70 AD, which is also expressly stated as part of the judgment of the previous destructions in Ezekiel 510. So, the future judgment of Jerusalem will be nothing like the previous destruction of Jerusalem, and I see no conflict with Ezekiel 5.9 and the future judgment of Jerusalem whatsoever. Before I start on the next objection, I would like to appeal to those of you who have read the Old Testament extensively, and remind you that all throughout Israel's biblical history, they have desired a king that would look the part, and basically give them what they wanted, that is, the conquering Messiah, that would deliver them from their current enemies. A good-looking son of David king, who would fulfill the prophecies of putting Jerusalem in the top spot of the cities of the earth. Now, of course, this will actually happen in the millennial reign. Jerusalem will be the city that rules the nations of the earth. We know this for the same reason that the Jews are expecting this, because scriptures like Ezekiel and Isaiah say that it will happen. But we must understand that one of the main reasons that many Jewish leaders rejected Jesus at the time was because he didn't seem to be fulfilling that conquering part of the messianic prophecies at his first coming, but prophecies of the suffering Messiah of Isaiah 53 and others, which we're so thankful for. In fact, even his disciples didn't quite get this at the time. They seemed to think that at some point he would start conquering the enemies of Israel and establish Jerusalem as the world capital. Even after he raised from the dead and just before he ascended into heaven, it says in Acts 1, 6-7, when they therefore were come together, they asked of him, saying, Lord, wilt thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? And he said unto them, It is not for you to know the times or the seasons of which the Father hath put in his own power. What I'm saying here is that Satan knows all this too. He knows that the Jews are waiting on a Messiah king that makes Jerusalem the capital city of the world in fulfillment of the Messianic prophecies. The reason why we see the Antichrist being so tied to Jerusalem in the last days is because he plans on making use of this thirst for a conquering Messiah king who make them the center of all the world's religion and economy, even if that religion is based on the worship of himself. And he will in fact seem to deliver on this promise, at least for a time. The next argument against this theory is a more general one. It's a kind of belief that Jerusalem is not going to be judged anymore, and that Jerusalem is a kind of city that will forever be free from judgment since the Jews are back in the land. But there are many passages that speak of a future eschatological judgment of Israel that contains elements that are beyond the scope of any previous judgment. When a prophecy fits this description, it almost always speaks of it in the same way, using similar vocabulary and themes. It speaks of a fiery trial, a purification of Israel that immediately precedes their ultimate redemption and their final atonement for past sins. The final reconciliation for sins is typified in the completion of the 70 weeks of Daniel. A good example of this fiery judgment just before reconciliation is found in Isaiah chapter 4, just before passages which are widely considered to be talking of the millennial reign. The millennial period seems to have the prerequisite of purifying judgment by fire for the Jews. 
Isaiah chapter 4, verses 4 through 6 says, When the Lord shall have washed away the filth of the daughters of Zion, and shall have purged the blood of Jerusalem from the midst thereof, by the spirit of judgment and by the spirit of burning, and the Lord will create upon every dwelling place of Mount Zion, and upon her assemblies, a cloud and smoke by day, and the shining of a flaming fire by night. For upon all the glory shall be a defense, and there shall be a tabernacle for a shadow in the daytime from the heat, and for a place of refuge, and for a covert from the storm and from rain. We see similar language in the post-exilic prophets. The reason why there being post-Babylonian exile is important is that one cannot say that the following were prophecies of Babylon's destruction of Jerusalem. For example, one post-exilic prophecy that wasn't fulfilled completely by 70 AD is found in Zechariah 13, 8-9, where it says, In the whole land, declares the Lord, two-thirds will be struck down and perish, yet one-third will be left in it. This third I will put into the fire. I will refine them like silver and test them like gold. And they will call on my name and I will answer them. I will say, they are my people, and they will say, the Lord is our God. This fiery refining, just before the redemption, is the time spoken of as the time of Jacob's trouble, which begins with the eschatological day of the Lord and ends with the end of the 70th week of Daniel. It's often missed that the one who troubles Jacob in this time is God himself, even though he may do this through various agents at certain times. He will refine one-third of national Israel during this time of judgment. This one-third of national Israel will come to know Jesus as Messiah, possibly through the ministry of the two witnesses. But either way, they will help to populate the millennial kingdom that we saw in the earlier charts. So yes, Israel will be judged for its sins, particularly their embracing of the Antichrist. They are not going to be exempt, and the teaching that they are is simply not biblical or logical. And finally, some people wonder if the interpretation that the eschatological city of Jerusalem is Mystery Babylon is in some way anti-Semitic, or they will wonder exactly how we should view modern-day Israel and Jerusalem in light of this information. The short answer is no, this is not anti-Semitic in any way. Reading about Israel's falling short in the Old Testament is not an anti-Semitic activity, and neither is this. But more to the point, this is not a theory about current Jerusalem or Israel, but a future one that we have not seen yet. And when it comes, their future sin of worshipping and promoting the Antichrist is, in reality, no different than the rest of the world's sin, which will do the exact same thing. Their future sin is compounded by their fierce promotion of the Antichrist as Messiah, and their having known the true God previously. But this embracing of the Antichrist is not unique to Israel. It is a sin that the entire unsaved world will share in. As far as how we should view Israel in light of this information, I think anyone that knows me or my previous studies know that I tend to default or err in support of Israel. But that does not mean that I think that they can do no wrong or that they're on the right side of every political issue. I think that we are instructed to pray for them, preach to them, and love them. I certainly recognize that there are all kinds of hate towards Israel in the unsaved world. I personally have a theory that the primary reason for this is that Satan believes that if he can eliminate a certain amount of Jewish people, he can prevent Christ from returning to take his throne, because the Jews petitioning their Messiah is one of the last things that Satan can try to stop to prevent Christ's return. This is why certain efforts have been made at genocide by governments that have been particularly given over to demonic powers, such as Hitler's. Satan is just being strategic in his attempt to protect his power. This attempt to prevent Christ taking his throne culminates ultimately in Revelation 19, with Satan literally trying to prevent the descent of Christ with some type of weaponry, presumably. But again, that's just a personal theory of mine, not something I'm dogmatic about. I hope that this has been helpful in clearing up some of the objections you may have had, and I hope that you will stay tuned as we get right back into the verse-by-verse -verse study of Mystery Babylon. So we will pick up right where we left off in Revelation 17, verse 12. It says, And the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings, which have received no kingdom as yet but receive power as kings one hour with the beast. Let's first go back and read up to this point so we can refresh our memories and get the context for this current passage. 
The angel in the section we studied had been giving the interpretation of John's vision of the beast that the woman is writing. We know from Revelation 13, as well as other verses in this chapter, that the beast she is writing is the Antichrist. So the verses leading up to our current verse say, This calls for a mind of wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman is seated. They are also seven kings, five of whom have fallen, one is, the other has not yet come. And when he does come, he must remain only a little while. As for the beast that was and is not, it is an eighth, but it belongs to the seven, and it goes to destruction. We talked about the description of the Antichrist here, which has seven heads. John says that the seven heads are seven kings. In the last study, we talked about why it's more likely that John means what he says here. That is, that these heads are different kings and not kingdoms, as some suppose. So we talked about how five times the spirit of Antichrist has manifested itself in the form of kings in John's past. One king currently was living at the time, and one future manifestation of the Antichrist was yet to come. This is the one that we believe will have the mortal wound and yet live, the one that we call the Antichrist. I want to briefly mention, speaking on this topic of the resurrection of the Antichrist, many people asked me in part three's study if I believed that Satan has the power to raise people from the dead. And I originally included in part three a lengthy discussion about that topic, but I ultimately excluded it because I thought it was uh, too much of a rabbit trail. But um, to answer the question, no, I do not believe that Satan has the power to raise the Antichrist or anybody else from the dead. However, I do believe that the Antichrist really does raise from the dead. I think when you put all those verses together, um, he actually is raising from the dead. So how do you answer that paradox? For more on that question, I will put together an appendix audio uh, on that very question, and you can find that in the notes. There's also a scholarly article on this point called Can Satan Raise the Dead Toward a Biblical View of the Beast's Wound by Gregory H. Harris. He's a professor of Bible exposition. And I recommend that paper if you're interested. And I agree with the overall premise of that paper, but I would probably disagree on some of the finer points about the false prophet and some other issues that he's got going on there. Okay, then, back to our verse in Revelation 17:12, which says, And the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings, which have received no kingdom as yet, but receive power as kings one hour with the beast. So, in our verse, we see that the beast has seven heads, but also ten horns. We are not told exactly how these horns are distributed on the seven heads, or if they are even on the seven heads at all. We don't know if six of the heads have one horn, and the seventh has four horns, or if they have some other arrangement. I think that when we consider the following passages, we will find that these ten horns have a job working with the final head. So if I were to make a guess, these horns are either all on one head, the seventh and final head, or not on the heads at all, but on some other part of the body. I also say that because the fourth beast of Daniel 7, verses 7 through 8, also has ten horns all on one head, uh, that beast is widely considered to be associated with the Antichrist in Daniel 7. So let's consider the symbolism so we can get our bearings in this difficult passage. The seven heads of this beast are seven kings. And now we are told that the horns of this beast are also kings. So what's this talking about? Let's read ahead so we can get the context and find the relationship of these kings to the Antichrist according to the angel. And this will help us make an informed decision about this text. Revelation 17, 12 through 17 says the following. And the ten horns which thou sawest are ten kings, which have received no kingdom as yet, but receive power as kings for one hour with the beast. These have one mind, and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. These shall make war with the lamb, and the lamb shall overcome them, for he is Lord of lords and king of kings. And they that are with him are called and chosen and faithful. 
And he saith unto me, The waters which thou sawest, where the horse sitteth, are peoples and multitudes and nations and tongues. And the ten horns which thou sawest upon the beast, these shall hate the whore, and shall make her desolate and naked, and shall eat her flesh and burn her with fire. For God hath put in their hearts to fulfill his will, and to agree and give their kingdom unto the beast, until the words of God shall be fulfilled. So it seems what we have here is one super king, a supreme dictator, which is the final yet future head of the Antichrist beast, that has ten other kings under his total authority. So part of the point of the symbol of the horns on the beast is speaking of a consolidation of power of some kind. The purpose for this consolidation is very interesting, and we will talk about that when we get to those verses. But the symbolism here of the ten horns on the beast is one main ruler ruling over other kings, which willingly give their authority to this dictator, who then uses them to do his bidding. But before we move on, I would like to briefly talk about the book of Daniel. I take a slightly different view on the beasts of Daniel 2 and Daniel 7 than some. I think it's a possibility that all four of the beasts of Daniel 7 may be contemporary with the Antichrist. I think that if this is true, there is much more detail that we can know about the end time scenario than has previously been considered. I'm still trying to figure this out for myself, and so I will leave it for your study. But I will direct you to a four-part paper called Daniel 2 and Daniel 7, Equal or Not Equal, by Charles Cooper, former professor of hermeneutics at Moody. Okay, the next section of this verse says, Which have received no kingdom as yet, but received power as kings one hour with the beast. First of all, please notice that this is making a distinction between kings and kingdoms here quite boldly. It says, Ten kings which have received no kingdom as yet. This is a strong rebuke to those that continually try to make the references to kings in these chapters mean kingdoms because of their various presuppositions. But John here demonstrates that if he, or the angel who he is recording, wants to say kingdoms instead of kings, they are quite willing and capable of doing so. So these kings in our verse are directly tied to the beast. It says that they only rule for, quote, one hour with the beast. We'll talk more in detail about their kingdoms and how they give away their power to the beast as we look at the next two verses where we will get more detail about this. So let's take those two verses together. Revelation 17, 13, and 14 says, These have one mind, and shall give their power and strength unto the beast. These shall make war with the Lamb, and the Lamb shall overcome them. For he is Lord of lords and King of kings, and they that are with him are called and chosen and faithful. So we see one of the reasons these kings are given power. That is, to war against the Lamb, who is, of course, Jesus Christ. This battle is referring to Armageddon. This may help explain the idea of these kings ruling for only one hour. By the Battle of Armageddon, things are looking pretty grim for the Antichrist. This would be the final attempt at preventing the return of Christ to take his throne. But to understand as much as we can about these kings, we need to hop over to Revelation 16 when it's talking about the sixth bowl of wrath being poured out. The sixth bowl is talking about the Battle of Armageddon. This is where we will see more about these ten kings and their warring with the Lamb. So, Revelation 16, 12 through 16 says the following. And the sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates, and the water thereof was dried up, that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. And I saw three unclean spirits, like frogs, come out of the mouth of the dragon, and out of the mouth of the beast, and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are the spirits of devils working miracles, which go forth unto the kings of the earth and the whole world to gather them to the battle of the great day of God Almighty. Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watcheth and keepeth his garments, lest he walk naked and they see his shame. And he gathered them together into a place called in the Hebrew tongue Armageddon. So these kings are gathered together by miracle-working demonic spirits sent forth in this bizarre ritual of the unholy trinity of the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. 
and these demonic spirits are presumably what causes them to agree to the suicide mission of trying to war against the living Christ, which, in case you're wondering, does not turn out too good for them. The next section says, and shall give their power and strength. Now, I'm not entirely sure that these kings ever do get kingdoms or not, but they have some kind of assets that are utilized by the beast. And it says here that they give their power and strength to the beast for this mission of warring against the lamb. RevelationCommentary.org notes, the title Lord of Lords and King of Kings is applied to the lamb here and the rider on the white horse in Revelation 19.16. Revelation 19 is another picture of the Battle of Armageddon. Revelation 19, 15 through 16 says, Speaking of the descent of the Lamb, and out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations, and he shall rule them with a rod of iron, and he treadeth the winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. And he hath on his vesture and on his thigh a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So we see here a clear reference to Armageddon again. And as we compare the different scriptures about these kings and the final battle that they are drawn to fight, my hope is that we are getting a better understanding of who these kings are. Let's go down a rabbit trail for a minute, because you may be asking the question, how is Armageddon referenced all these times in all these different places, like Revelation 16, 17, and 19, if the book of Revelation is chronological? Well, let me assure you that not everyone sees the book of Revelation as chronological, but I think it's because they don't see the simple structure of this great book. It helped me tremendously to see the structure of the last few chapters of Revelation, so I'll take a moment to explain it with this graph I made. On the left, you'll see the seven bowls, and they're detailed in chapter 16. These include the worst parts of God's judgment in the book of Revelation, and I believe they occur relatively quickly and close together. The sixth bowl details the Battle of Armageddon. This is where we saw the spirits like frogs which gather the kings to the Battle of Armageddon. And the seventh bowl details the judgment of the horror of Babylon and the earthquake that surrounds that event. The next few chapters are what I like to call Zoom chapters, where the step-by-step -step chronology is halted in order to give more specific details about someone or something. In the case of the next two chapters, 17 and 18, it gives the finer details of the seventh bowl, which is where Mystery Babylon is destroyed. The next chapter, chapter 19, mostly details the sixth bowl in finer detail. This is where we just read that it says, On his thigh was a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. When Revelation 19 is done zooming in on the finer details of the Sixth Bowl, or Armageddon, it picks right back up in Revelation 20, where the timeline left off in Revelation 16. Then in Revelation 20, we see the Antichrist and the False Prophet judged, right where you would expect it to be if it was a continuation from Revelation 16. Then the completion of the First Resurrection happens, the Thousand-Year Peace, or the Millennium, begins. Then it continues and describes the time after the Thousand-Year Period, when Satan is released to gather the nations for one final battle, the Gog-Magog War. And finally, we see the very last event in the chronology of all prophetic revelation, the New Jerusalem and the Eternal Kingdom descending. I hope this gives you a better understanding of the chapters that we're studying. I think you'll find it's easier to understand this book when you plug in the concept of Zoom chapters to the book of Revelation. Okay, back in our study, the next verse is Revelation 17, verse 15. It says, And he saith unto me, The waters which thou sawest, where the horse sitteth, are peoples, multitudes, and nations, and tongues. So first this phrase, the waters which thou sawest. The angel here is giving the interpretation of the waters that he saw the whore on. The waters are peoples, and multitudes, and nations, and tongues. This idea of sitting on peoples, multitudes, nations, and tongues is a way to say that the city of Mystery Babylon rules over many, and has great power and authority. This is consistent with the later descriptions of Mystery Babylon's actions in the next chapter and her relationship to the other kings of the earth and the other nations. 
This same language is used when Jeremiah talks about the destruction of actual Babylon in Jeremiah 51, 13. It says, O thou that dwellest upon many waters, abundant in treasures, thine end has come, and the measure of thy covetousness. You'll see many similar things like this in Jeremiah 51. I think that this is why Mystery Babylon is called Mystery Babylon, because Mystery Babylon in Revelation 17 shares not only the city of Babylon's former power over nations, but also shares her worship of the false gods, as well as ultimately Babylon's pattern of judgment detailed in Jeremiah 51. We have, of course, been detailing in our study the possibility of the eschatological city of Jerusalem being Mystery Babylon, the city that rules many nations in the time of Antichrist. It should be noted that the Jews and Christians both believe that Jerusalem will be the capital city of the world in the Messianic Age. The book of Zechariah is just one of many places in the Bible where this promise is made. Zechariah 12, 3, 4, 16, and 17 says, Then shall the Lord go forth, and his feet shall stand in that day upon the Mount of Olives, which is before Jerusalem on the east. And it shall come to pass that everyone that is left of all the nations which came against Jerusalem shall go up from year to year to worship the King, the Lord of hosts, and to keep the Feast of Tabernacles. You will find glimpses of Jerusalem's future as world capital are sprinkled all throughout the Psalms and the major and minor prophets. Jewish people have been waiting for thousands of years for someone to make Jerusalem the world capital, just as their scriptures promise that it will be. I think that our verse in Revelation 17:15 and others like it show that the Antichrist will succeed in doing this to an extent as he masquerades as their Messiah. He will make Jerusalem the uncontested world capital. If you understand this, the entire next chapter about the people making pilgrimages and bringing tribute to Mystery Babylon as if it was the city of the Messianic Age and as if the Antichrist was the Messiah, then it will make a lot more sense to you, I think. People will try to use this verse about her sitting on waters, which are nations, to say that the seven-headed beast which she sits on represents kingdoms, not kings. They would say that this verse defines the beast itself as opposed to the waters that both the woman and the beast sit on. To say it another way, they're saying that the waters here are the beast as opposed to what the beast along with the woman atop him are sitting on. They would say that, well, it says that she sits on waters here, and it says in another place that she sits on the beast, so the beast and the waters must be the same. But I think it's wrong for at least two reasons. One is that it's more logical to assume that she, the Mystery Babylon city, is sitting on a seven-headed beast, and both of them are sitting on the waters, that is, ruling over the peoples, nations, etc. In other words, the city of Jerusalem, the woman, and the beast that she rides, the Antichrist, are both sitting, or ruling, many peoples and nations. It's the Antichrist and his capital city, ruling over the rest of the nations. Not only is this consistent with what we just looked at, about the ten horned kings who give their authority to the beast, but it also connects to Revelation 13, where we see that the seven-headed, ten-horned Antichrist beast comes out of the sea, which is a consistent idiom for peoples and nations. He is not the sea itself in Revelation 13. In fact, that chapter makes it very clear, in my opinion, that he is, in fact, a human king. All right, our next verse is Revelation 17, verse 16. It says, And the ten horns which thou sawest upon the beast, these shall hate the whore, and shall make her desolate and naked, and shall eat her flesh and burn her with fire. This is a very interesting development. The ten kings, who we saw earlier, are subordinate to the Antichrist and are used to go to war against God, are also used here to destroy the city of Mystery Babylon. So the Antichrist here turns on the woman. We will see later that although the kings who do this are under the complete control of the Antichrist, it is God, ultimately, that causes this to happen for the purposes of his judgment. 
Interestingly, this verse is the fulfillment of a detailed prophecy in the Old Testament book of Ezekiel about Jerusalem. So let's take a look. It starts out saying, And the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, cause Jerusalem to know her abominations. So you can see from verse 1 and 2 that the following prophecy is about Jerusalem. The context in this chapter also makes this very clear. So keeping in mind our current verse in Revelation 17 about the ten kings hating the whore, making her desolate and naked, and burning her with fire, and let's read Ezekiel 16, 38 through 41 to see what I believe is an exact fulfillment of this prophecy. It says, And I will judge you as a woman who break wedlock or shed blood are judged. I will bring blood upon you in fury and jealousy. I will also give you into their hand, and they shall throw down your shrines and break down your high places. They shall also strip you of your clothes, take your beautiful jewelry, and leave you naked and bare. They shall also bring up an assembly against you, and they shall stone you with stones and thrust you through with their swords. They shall burn your houses with fire and execute judgments on you in the sight of many women. And I will make you cease playing the harlot, and you shall no longer hire lovers. This is exactly fulfilled in our verse back in Revelation 17, verse 15. Some people would say that all this has been fulfilled in 70 AD or with Babylon, and I have many problems with that, not just the issues of the fire and different historical aspects, but primarily because when God speaks of these judgments, it speaks of when it is done, it's done. They will no longer play the harlot. They will no longer worship false gods. And we simply can't say that of any of the past judgments of Israel. And when you plug in all the other future, very obviously eschatological prophecies of judgment, things that simply have not happened yet, we must conclude that there is a future judgment of Israel, and it's always followed by this idea of total reconciliation. So we must see these as eschatological if we are to be straightforward with the text, in my opinion. Okay, back to these kings who destroy Mystery Babylon. It should be noted that these earthly kings only constitute a small portion of her destruction. She is also judged by earthquakes and fire from heaven, as well as whatever these kings do. I would also submit that the ultimate judgment of Mystery Babylon and the Battle of Armageddon probably take place very close to one another. I also think that they will happen at very near the same place, i.e. Jerusalem. For more on this possibility, see a paper called A Big Problem, Where is Armageddon? an examination of Revelation 16.16. And I'll put that in the notes. Very interesting paper that uh, proposes that the correct word there is har moed. and has a very good argumentation to demonstrate that. But I will leave that for your study. But for now, all you need to know is that although the Antichrist turns on the city of Mystery Babylon and uses these lackey kings to plunder her, it is by no means the only judgment that she receives according to the seventh bold judgment and parallel passages. So the next verse, Revelation 17, 17 says, For God hath put in their hearts to fulfill his will, and to agree and give their kingdom unto the beast, until the words of God shall be fulfilled. So this first part, for God hath put in their hearts to fulfill his will. This shows the sovereignty of God in all this, that God is the ultimate force behind this judgment, whether these kings know it or not. And it's made even more clear in the next chapter, which says in Revelation 18, 8, Therefore shall her plagues come in one day, death and mourning and famine, and she shall be utterly burned with fire, for strong is the Lord God who judgeth her. The next part says, And to agree and give their kingdoms unto the beast, until the words of God shall be fulfilled. Again, this harkens back to the fact that these ten kings give their power and authority to the beast. Here it says that they collectively have a kingdom, which is interesting because it's not a plural kingdom, as you would expect. I think this is interesting because it may indicate that these ten kings are representatives of one collective kingdom. This may also explain why they didn't have a kingdom, quote, yet in verse 12, and why they were only said to give power and authority in verse 13. But that's not entirely clear to my um, 
to my thinking right now, and I wouldn't make too much out of that, but it is interesting. The next verse, Revelation 17, 18, the final verse of Revelation 17 says, And the woman which thou sawest is that great city which reigneth over the kings of the earth. Here we have a very important verse to study in the process of trying to figure out who Mystery Babylon is. Here we are told point blank by the angel that this woman is a city. The views that try to make her something else, such as an allegorical source of spiritual and or economic evil, are disregarding the faithfulness of the angel's interpretation of John's vision, in my opinion. All through scripture, when interpretations of a vision are given, they're pretty straightforward. It's unlikely, therefore, that the angel would tell John that they're about to interpret his vision and then give him an interpretation that he was not supposed to accept. It would also be inconsistent with the angel's other interpretations in the same chapter. The angel gets really specific. It says, that great city which reigneth over the kings of the earth. Now we know from the passages we read today that Mystery Babylon will sit over many nations and peoples and tongues and will be the city that the Antichrist rules from. But I think the problem that many commentators have here is that they try to look around their current days and find which city rules over the earth in their day. This tendency to look to our surroundings for the fulfillment of this passage, as opposed to the future, has caused a lot of bad interpretations here, in my opinion. Considering the Antichrist is supposed to set up a world government that most of us would agree is in the future, why would we feel the need to have the passages about his world government capital city fulfilled in the past? The temptation has been too great to resist for most commentators in my library, anyway. Moving on to this idea of the phrase, great city. I'm under the impression that the Bible would not like us to speculate on this point about the identity of Mystery Babylon. And one of the many ways it has given us to answer the question about the identity of Mystery Babylon is by the use of this term, great city. The phrase, great city, is used ten times in the book of Revelation, and every time it refers to the city of Jerusalem. Many people would violently disagree with me on that point because they don't see Mystery Babylon, which is called the great city, many of those times, as Jerusalem. So, let's set aside, for the time being, the instances of the phrase great city in Revelation used to refer to Mystery Babylon, and let's only talk about the references to the great city where it is absolutely undisputed that it's talking about Jerusalem. For example, in Revelation 11, verse 8, it says, And their dead bodies, now this is speaking of the two witnesses who are killed by the Antichrist. So it says, And their dead bodies shall lie in the street of the great city, which is spiritually called Sodom and Egypt, where also our Lord was crucified. Obviously, the city where Jesus was crucified is Jerusalem. Nobody would deny that. Some commentators concede this point begrudgingly, knowing the problem that it creates later on. I would also call your attention to the definite article ho in the Greek here, as in the great city. This ensures that we know that Jerusalem is considered by John to have the title of the great city. The fact that John uses the phrase great city, which he uses earlier to define the Jerusalem during the time of the two witnesses after they were killed by the Antichrist, is very strong evidence in favor of the interpretation that Mystery Babylon is Jerusalem. But these great city references show that Mystery Babylon is Jerusalem in another way as well. Revelation 16.19 distinguishes the great city from the cities of the nations. RevelationCommentary.org states, this is the second proof that the great city refers to Jerusalem. The cities of the nations, Gentiles, is in contrast to the great city, Jews. So understand this part. The word Gentiles and nations are almost synonymous. They're interchangeable. There are two types of cities in the world, if you want to look at it from a Jewish perspective. Jerusalem and the Gentile cities. And this verse, Mystery Babylon, is contrasted with the cities of the nations, which suggests that it is not a Gentile nation. 
Some scholars that recognize the significance of Revelation 16:19 will try to make the reference to Babylon here be a third entity in the discussion. The word and here in the King James seems to lend credibility to this third party interpretation. In other words, they will say that the great city, which they would concede is Jerusalem, is split into three parts and the cities of the nations also fell and Babylon was mentioned as the third party. Most would say that only two parties are in view here, the great city divided into three parts and the cities of the nations. The following mention of the great Babylon is in reference to the great city mentioned just before. Other translations agree, especially the newer ones, they connect the great city in the first part to great Babylon. The Net Bible says the great city was split into three parts and the cities of the nations collapsed. So Babylon the great was remembered before God and was given the cup filled with the wine made of God's furious wrath. In the footnote, the Net Bible explains why it rendered Kai as so. It says to indicate the implied result of Babylon's misdeeds, see Revelation 14.8. Another new Bible translation, expected to be completed later on this year, the ISV says, The great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. God remembered to give Babylon the great the cup of wine filled with fury of his wrath. The Net Bible renders this so Babylon. The ISV renders it, God remembered to give Babylon. That is to say that it did not introduce a new character here, but gave more information about the first character mentioned. And this would make an unambiguous case that the great city is definitely Mystery Babylon, and it's definitely Jerusalem. I know that this was a long way around, but the simple version is that the last verse of Revelation 17 calls Mystery Babylon the great city, a term that is also used very directly to identify the Jerusalem of the Antichrist. By the same author, in the same book, using a definite article to indicate a title or at least a very definite identification with the phrase. Okay, so we just finished Revelation 17 in our last section. So our first verse is Revelation 18, verse 1, which says, And after these things I saw another angel come down from heaven, having great power, and the earth was lighted with his glory. So first let's take this phrase, and after these things. It basically refers to the events of the previous chapter, chapter 17 where we see John's vision and its interpretation by the angel. And this phrase, after these things, signals a new vision unit. Chapter 17 declared the judgment of Mystery Babylon, and also the objects of God's judgment were described, the woman and the beast that she rides. Chapter 18 will have somewhat similar themes, but it will spend a lot of extra time on the wealth of the city at the time of Antichrist's rule. The next phrase says, I saw another angel come down from heaven. So the angel that will be speaking at this point is not the same one that gave the interpretation of John's vision in the previous chapter. The previous angel was one of the seven that poured out the last seven bold judgments. We see that in Revelation 17 verse 1. This angel is different in many ways. One notable way is that unlike the previous angel, it does not speak to John directly. But John basically overhears the declaration that the angel says and records it. The angel seems kind of unconcerned or unaware that John is even present. This could either be a type of drama put on for John's benefit, or perhaps John is overseeing actual events that will take place in the spiritual or even physical realm at the time of the harlot city's judgment. The next phrase, having great power, and the earth was lighted with his glory. The angel is described with some provocative language. It says it has great power, and we're not told how John knows this, but perhaps it's evident from its appearance or some other quality. It's tempting.